0: Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Busky. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio.
2: Good morning and welcome to Counter Culture on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host Marie Buskey and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. You may have heard I was covering breakfast for Paul on Monday and I alluded to the guest that I'll be having on today's show, Dr Gad Sad, Professor of Marketing from Concordia University in Canada. He has become a cultural icon and is hilarious on YouTube. He's a podcast. and writes such titles as the parasitic mind he will be joining me to talk about his new book the sad truth about happiness and make sure you listen to the end of the interview because afterwards i'm going to tell you how you can win a copy of gad's new book following gad i'm joined by daniel principer from sydney daniel is a youth activist from collective shout and we're going to be talking about fostering positive masculinity in young men and boys Marty will be back along for Media Matters and I tell you what, with only a few days left in the election campaign we will discuss the notion of whether or not the New Zealand media have completely lost their minds and I'll finish things off with the Woke News of the Week. Time now to dive into the mailbag for some of your feedback. Uh, First up from Vivian, folks this was the most interesting American analysis, wild. From the text machine, uh, again, I think talking about the Trevor interview, I think you'll find New Zealand oil is talking about China in regards to not being reliant on them for one. Uh, that, that, that's right, because Trevor was wondering if any political parties have some policy around China. This is from Mark. What I have learned over the last three years, George Orwell's 1984 at Animal Farm has become non fictional. I certainly can believe that, Mark. I am grateful that we had lost long-term acquaintances and friends based on differing vaccine and mandate choices, but quickly gathered a new tribe of like-minded folks who have deep concerns and solutions for the betterment of society. I have learnt that the experimental and EUA COVID-19 vaccine mantra of the safe and effective produced by the most criminally prosecuted company in the world and mandated by vaccine-exempt politicians proves that evil does succeed among people who are stupid. But I've also learned not to force people on what or how to think, but to make them unconsciously conscious by simply asking questions like follow the money. I was once an anti-vaxxer who quickly turned into an anti farmer who will eventually become an anti-globalist. I've learned during the climate change fast that CO2, a non-toxic gas, makes up about 0.04% of the atmosphere and 3% of that point zero four percent is man-made. So CO2 is up there with oxygen in its importance. In fact, life wouldn't exist without it. Furthermore, billions closed down to trillions of dollars. Has now been spent on net zero initiatives and have been diverted away from real pollution issues like plastics, sewage, toxic pesticides and herbicides, etc., resulting in economic carnage where we're taxing workers and businesses billions of dollars to fund a problem that doesn't exist. I soon became aware that the mainstream media today, with social media giants, globalists, governments, and related agencies, UN, WHO, and WEF combined to form the largest fascist cabal. Paradox of the century, single source of truth and censorship are required for democracy and freedom of speech to prosper. Amen to that, Mark. In summary, I was once a pacifist. I am now indebted to independent podcasts and social media outlets like Reality Check Radio, Dark Horse, Rogan, etc. That's some very fine company you've placed us in there, Mark, who have fed my intellect and awareness. However, I look at my grandchildren who feed my soul. I'm now belligerent. I will, to my last remaining breath, defend their futures for freedom and bodily autonomy based on a non-divisive society. Restore the immediate family and the village tribe as part of the inner circle to raise and assist a child's development, not Agenda 2030 bureaucrats, technocrats and all politicians who will certainly not be acting in civilization's best interest. Whew, thank you for that, Mark. That is fabulous. This one's from Chris. Hi, Maria. I really enjoyed your talk with the ladies from New Zealand First today. They will certainly get my party vote. It's a shame that we don't have anyone standing in my electorate from New Zealand First. I'm so looking forward to the inquiry and even more to the murder and treason court cases. I would also love to see many knighthoods removed. That was from Chris uh, on Media Matters. Man, isn't this the truth? I was all set to vote Act until David showed his true colours and dropped those candidates out of his party list. Bad move, act. Better make way for Mr Peters as he blows past you in Parliament. And on the New Zealand First trio from Lindsay, Freedom Fighters for New Zealand First. And then there's also Lee Donoghue at number 11. That's right. Looking forward to this one. Not to be missed. Three great women. Thank goodness New Zealand First know what a woman is. So true. And from Charmaine, someone should actually inform Green supporters and expose the watermelon Greens actually stand for. People are being deceived and they should reconsider the vote. Minor parties in New Zealand have their best interests in heart. That's in regards to my interview with trevor and then lee was saying great interview with the three new zealand first candidates looking forward to being able to share the replay so some great feedback from everybody there remember you can send us your feedback to 2057 by text or inbox at realitycheck.radio for an email we'll head to aotearoa farm in just a moment tensions on aotearoa farm are at an all-time high with the departure of several rams to the works Kitty Kate has been spotted slinking around the sheep pens and the central courtyard of the farm, greasing up any hoggital ewe that will give her the time of day. Since sporting her trademark red beret and a penchant for excessive grooming, Kitty Kate has become most disturbed at the rising avian threat. Kate was quite sure that she had snuffed out this threat with Napoleon and all errant avians got dispatched to the back paddocks during the sickness. But it appears out of sight, doesn't guarantee out of mind. And now that Winnie Ben seems to have sided with the fetid fowl, Kitty Kate needs to deploy all her feline wiles to quell the potential of the feathered return to the farmhouse on the back of the old donkey. She was spotted rubbing up against Chippy and Shawshank. Even Oinky and David Piglet entertained the slippery feline. Then, as if like magic, the chorus from the sheep started in unison. Winnie Ben, not to be trusted. New election should be held if Winnie was to return. Don't trust Winnie. Pigs under attack by chickens. Kitty Kate just looked her paws and slinked away into the darkness. Her job here was done, but was it? meanwhile shawshank had issues of his own the free-range pigs seemed content to try to grasp the vestiges of their misspent youth by putting the fear of the climate gods into the glittery farmyard youth a strategy that appeared to be working until shawshank forgot he was talking to the grown-up animals He was heard boasting that his new feed tax would likely see at least a quarter of the best-producing Aotearoa farm animals leave the farm for good if implemented, and that was all right by him. Oh dear, I don't think it sounded as bad in his head as it did out loud. Shawshank was last seen in the electric pūha patch trying to settle his nerves. Speaking of nerves, it appears that the backstabbing and bickering was getting to our oinky Lux. Even though he was looking most likely to succeed Chippy in the farmhouse, his victory was far from definitive and his campaign has stalled. He went to bed that evening knowing he needed to formulate a new plan to inspire the farm and catapult him into power, with no assistance required from the old donkey. With Oinky snoring soundly in his sty, a dream begins to form. With snoring and snorting loudly and legs twitching, music pervades the porcine's mind. Ground control to Major Lux. Oinky! Ground control to Major Lux. key. Okay. Take your pig pellets and put your helmet on. Oinky, wake up, Oinky! Nicky Sow shakes out Oinkster vigorously to rouse him. <coughs> oh, <no. coughs> hey, Oinky, were you dreaming? Nicky Sow asks. Oinky Lux sits bolt upright. I've got it, Nicky. I can't believe it. I didn't think of it, sooner, Exclaims Oinky in a fit of unexpected exuberance. I know how to win the hearts and the minds of the farm and make that old donkey redundant. It's brilliant, Nicky. Scratch that. It's bloody genius. What on earth are you talking about, Winky? Nicky sighed. Nicky, we need pigs in space. Make sure you tune in next week. To catch up on the results of the election on Aotearoa Farm, an episode surely not to be missed, exclusively here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio good morning and welcome you are with counterculture here with Marie on reality check radio and it's with tremendous pleasure that i introduce professor writer podcaster honey badger and the gadfather himself gad said good morning gad how are you
4: oh good to be with you except that where i am it's not it's it's good afternoon it's around two o'clock where i am but i yeah. appreciate the time zone difference
2: i know time travelers you see <laughs> for, for flightless birds, we do quite well down here in New Zealand. Look, I'm really excited. I managed to get a copy of The Sad Guide to Happiness. It only just got released here in New Zealand in the last um, four or five days. It is available now from Amazon. I managed to get a copy actually via Audible. They released it early so you could get it earlier on Audible in New Zealand. So the f- actually very first question I had is, can you please tell your publisher to let you voice your own book? As a little personal request <laughs> uh- from me
4: well you know you'd only be amongst the many thousands who've written to me irately for also for the last book the parasitic Mind. luckily the the main negative criticism that i've received so far on either books has been why am i not the one narrating it and as i've told many people i would love to do nothing but that but ultimately the decision is up to the audio publisher who buys the audio rights of the book and for whatever reason maybe it's cost maybe it's logistics They've always insisted that they want to do it in-house, but maybe having now listened to all of the people's feedback, including yours, in the next book, I'll put it in the contract that it has to be me. Otherwise, no deal.
2: Yeah, he's really good, but you have so many personal insights and anecdotes, and I think they would be made much more powerful if they were read for you. So you can tell them that I I I said that. I hear you. <laughs> so, happiness, of course, the book is called the-, the
4: Sad Truth About Happiness.
2: Ah, The Sad Truth About Happiness. Right. The Sad yes.
4: Truth About Happiness. And SAD, S-A-A-D, because it's my last name.
2: It's fantastic. And one of the things that I wanted to know I've got several questions. I've got a page of questions. But one of the things that struck me is Has modern life made our ability to be happy more difficult?
4: That's a good question. And I touch upon it using an evolutionary lens because some of your listeners may not know that my scientific work is at the intersection of evolutionary psychology and the behavioral sciences. How how do we understand human behavior via the evolutionary lens? So in evolutionary medicine, there is a concept called the mismatch hypothesis, which basically argues that something that may have been evolutionarily adaptive in our ancestral past may become maladaptive in the contemporary environment. So the classic example of that would be our gustatory preferences have evolved to solve a recurring endemic problem in our evolutionary history, which is caloric scarcity and caloric uncertainty. And therefore your ancestors and mine and you and I probably prefer some instantiation of a fatty food more than raw celery. Now that makes perfect adaptive sense in that ancestral environment where we were defined by scarcity and uncertainty. In today's environment of plentitude, that becomes a mismatch in that my gustatory preferences still wish to hoard, to gorge high calorie foods, but I no longer face that ancestral environment. And that mismatch then results in many of the key health killers. Now you could apply that framework for many of the things that make us unhappy in the modern world as per your question. So for example, we've evolved to be in bands, close bands of about 150 people. This is called Dunbar's number. Well, in today's world, I could live in Manhattan amongst 8 million people. So you would think that there's no way for me to be lonely, but the reality is I'm very likely to be lonely despite the fact that I'm surrounded by millions of people. So because there is a mismatch between the environment of our evolutionary past and the Current modern environment, we do end up at times being unhappy in all sorts of ways.
2: That kind of makes sense in this that if that if our modern life means that we've got so many things that come to ease with us, then in order to have happiness, do we need the balance? Then sometimes we also have to have headwinds in our life. If we've got everything is perfectly utopian, that still doesn't necessarily guarantee happiness.
4: Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So I in in, in one of the later chapters in the books I talk about anti-fragility which i mean the term has been uh, popularized by nasim talib a fellow lebanese author but the concept has existed for thousands of years there are maxims and adages that speak to that so that which does not kill you makes you stronger squeaky doors don't break even seneca in the epigraph of that chapter i have a i have a a quote from seneca the roman stoic from several thousand years ago where he basically argues that strong trees that have deep roots are precisely those that can withstand strong wind stressors. And that's what allows them to now no longer be brittle. So now we can apply that exactly to the question that you asked, which is for me to optimally Function to have maximal flourishing, I need to be exposed to stressors, not stressors that kill me or destroy my will to to live, but sufficiently challenging stressors that if I overcome them, it leads me to a path of optimal flourishing. So, maybe paradoxically, but if you understand it in this framework, it makes perfect sense. My very difficult childhood growing up in Lebanon in the civil war, even though that's a tragic reality, I actually use that. I can contextualize anything that I'm feeling on a given day, if I'm pissed off at something, if I'm anxious, if I'm stressed, if I'm upset, I can then always kind of contextualize that compared to whatever I faced in Lebanon and suddenly I can snap myself out of it. So yes, stressors can actually help us to be happier.
2: So one of the things you talk about in the book quite a lot is your displeasure, particularly with the Canadian tax system, and you've been quite vocal about that, and some of the issues around the weather and, and politically there, and your desire to sort of potentially move far-flung in the challenges there. It wasn't until I got to that chapter later on, because I kept thinking, well, if it annoys you so much, why don't you just move? But then that has an own set of challenges itself. Would you ever consider leaving Canada to try and pursue happiness later on, or are you still oh, that, there?
4: Yes, thank you for that uh, question. Uh, I would definitely consider it. Now this, sometimes when I say that, someone will write to me irately that, you know, you're an ingrate immigrant. We accepted you in Canada, you know, 50 years ago or 40 some years ago, and you wanna now abandon us and leave us. Well, the reality is that there are many wonderful things about Canada, but as to your point, uh, I don't believe in a socialist system. I don't believe that uh, 58% of my book royalties should go to the government. 58%, so only 42% of my personhood, of my thoughts, of my neuronal firings, of my words, of my humor, of my experience for three decades as a professor belong to me. Well, that's not a person who has full personal autonomy. That's not a person who is a dignified free individual because let's put it another way. I work for the government from January 1st till about mid-August. And in mid-August, I'm allowed to keep my money. But the money that I'm allowed to keep, if I spend any of it, then you take 15% of that. So once you add the prohibitively high provincial tax, federal tax, income tax, then provincial sales tax, then federal sales tax, then carbon tax, then property tax, then school tax, then I'm roughly left with about 30 cents to the dollar. That doesn't strike me like a an optimal plan for, for, uh, for flourishing, for personal agency, unless you're one of the people who benefits from taking all that money from me, in which case it's a utopia. Canada is a beautiful place. But in order for that Ponzi parasitic scheme to work, there needs to be suckers like me that fund everybody else. And so, yes, if given the chance, I would leave Canada.
2: Mm, look, uh, don't come here is the uh, short answer to that. (laughs) Is it as bad? We we have a lot of similarities between Canada. In fact, we're probably more similar to Canada than we are to Australia in a lot of ways. Our polls are now open. We have an election Saturday. One of our green candidates wants to introduce even more tax here and asked, well, wealthy people have said that they may leave the country. What do you say to that? And he said, it's okay. We built in 25% of people to do that. So yeah, don't come here again. I don't think you'll be happy here. <laughs> in terms of the similarities, one of the similarities that we have between the two countries is culture. And when I say culture, I don't mean our indigenous cultures. I'm talking about the import that comes from North America primarily, and that's woke culture for all critical social justice, or the bluehead Taliban, as you like to call them, We have a very, we're currently under a very woke government who look like they're going to be departing. They certainly have not made the population of the people very happy. How is it that those people who hold those views, it's one of the observations that I've just casually had, is whenever I've come up against somebody who's really steeped in that ideology, they're miserable. Is it the ideology? Is it their natures? What causes them to be so glum? (laughs)
4: So there are two parts that I need to, to expand on to answer that. So in my previous book, not the sad truth of what happens in the previous book called The Parasitic Mind, I explain how human beings have the capacity to not only be parasitized by actual physical brain parasites, but they can be parasitized by idea pathogens, ideological parasites that can cause us to behave in grossly irrational and maladaptive ways. Now, Why is it that these idea pathogens can be so alluring to the the, the blue-haired Taliban? Well, it's because all of those idea pathogens originally start off with a noble goal, but then in the pursuit of that noble goal, if you have to murder and rape truth in the service of that goal, so be it. So for example, Equity feminism is a great idea, but basically says that men and women should be treated equally under the law. And I think most of your listeners would say, yeah, sign me up, I'm an equity feminist. Radical feminists then come along and say, well, in order for us to truly eradicate the sexist patriarchal status quo, we have to promulgate the message that men and women are indistinguishable in every possible way. And if there are any differences, those must be due to social construction. And therefore, that's why radical feminism, social constructivism are some of the key idea pathogens that i talk about in the book so that's so that explains the first part of your question which is why is it that so many people fall prey to these parasitic ideas now why is it that they are uniquely gloomy i i address that briefly in the in the current happiness book where i argue or demonstrate that much of the research has shown that on average conservatives tend to be happier than progressives. Now I offer a speculative argument as to why that might be, but I think it's a very plausible one. Conservatives by the de- by the nature of the word think that there is something worthy of conserving. So when I wake up if I'm a conservative I feel existentially happy that, wait a minute, there are some foundational values in the West that are worthy of being protected, of being conserved, of being passed on to my children. If I'm a progressive, I have the sense of existential doom because the current world that I live in is evil. It's racist, it's Islamophobic, it's transphobic, it's sexist, it's eco-terrorism. So just around the corner, there is unicornia. And if only I can eradicate the current status quo, I'll get to that magic line of unicornia where we could get peace around the world through reggae music. And so Until then, I'm pissed off because the current reality is ugly. So I think that is a fundamental existential reason why progressives are so gloomy.
2: Throughout the book, when I was going through the different chapters, I was writing notes and I kept getting like little sayings that would come to mind that my mothers or my grandparents would say to me. So things like, you know, take time to smell the roses, for example, was one of the earlier chapters that I wrote down. And another one was idle hands of the devil's work in terms of keeping yourself goals and productivity. And then you would address things like all good things, but in moderation, which you dedicated a whole chapter to. So is there something that our previous generations knew around attaining happiness that we seem to have forgotten?
4: Yes, another great question. Uh, look, one of the most daunting things, if not the most daunting thing, about embarking on writing a book about happiness is that there's probably no topic that philosophers have covered at greater length than how to live the good life, what's well-being, what how to live, right? So the, not just the ancient Greeks covered it, but all all sorts of uh, philosophical traditions have singularly tried to answer that question. Now, I think what was unique Hopefully, if I've done a good job, what, what is unique about my book is that, well, my personal experiences are unique to me. And then I mix that with some ancient wisdoms backed up by contemporary science, and hopefully we have a good melange. But to your question, yes, there are many ancient wisdoms that have stood the test of time precisely because they are invariant to time or culture. So the the one that you mentioned, the, the last one, the everything in moderation, I mean, several, Traditions have made that point. Buddha, the the Buddhists talk about middle way, but the most famous manifestation of that principle is Aristotle. In his uh, Nicomachean Ethics, he talks about the golden mean. So for example, he says that if a soldier is too cowardly, meaning lacking courage, that's a bad thing. But if he is extremely reckless in his bravery and courage, well, then you martyr yourself, you die in three seconds. So somewhere in the middle must lie the optimal mean, or to use a colloquialism from today, is the sweet spot, right? And so what I demonstrate in that chapter is that that profound piece of wisdom applies to a bewildering number of human phenomena at the neuronal level, at the individual level, at the societal level, at the ecological level, at the economic level. So that's what makes many of these ancient wisdoms so powerful is because we truly don't appreciate how universal they are. Mm.
2: So when society that you live in politically has tilted away from that sweet spot, as it were, so you look politically like the Overton window. I don't know what your observations are, but certainly for me in my 50 odd years is that I felt that things have shunted very much towards the left side of the scale and, and it almost feels like we require a rebalancing. How do you then, you can t- deal with your individual happiness, but how do you then combat when your environment seems to be so unbalanced or unhappy around you?
4: So, uh, I mean, I can answer it for me, or more generally for people. So, for me, so I'm often asked, you know, why is it that you lend your voice in all these battles? I mean, you already lead a very, you know, active and stressful life as a, you know, professor. I have a lab, research, teaching, graduate students, grants. Uh, That's enough for ten people. Why do I then do all the other stuff? Well, and my answer is. And, and it can then be applied to other people at various levels of mo- modulation. I have a very exacting and punishing code of personal conduct, such as, such as at the end of the night, when I put my head on the pillow to sleep, the only way that I can forestall insomnia is if I know that I was fully authentic in everything that I did, I was truthful. I didn't shy away from speaking my mind because of a careerist concern. Because according to my calculus, that would be fraudulent, that would be a sham. That means I'm doing something that is inauthentic. And therefore, because that's for better or worse, that is an, a dispositional part of my personality, I can't walk away from all the craziness that that's why I do it in a very natural way. I can't be anything but what I am, right? Now, for other people, they might say, yeah, but you know, I'm not a fancy professor. I don't have your platform. I'm not Joe Rogan. There's always an excuse for why you shouldn't be the one to lend your voice in the battle. You know, Jordan Peterson is, seems like a big boy. He could handle it for the rest of us. Well, no, I say, of course, you may not have the voice of Joe Rogan, but within your sphere of influence, you could affect change. If you're sitting at a private uh, function at, at a pub with a bunch of friends and someone says something that you find hallucinatarily imbecilic, like men too can menstruate, then maybe challenge that person, don't be afraid about them not thinking you're a good friend or it might cause division. I, in, in the parasitic mind, I say any friendship that cannot withstand the anti-fragility of us having opposing opinions is a friendship that is not worth having. I'm not interested in being your friend if I can, if, if there is no room for me to ever disagree with you. And so f- for me, that, that's why in that in the previous book, uh, I talk about activating your inner honey badger as you kindly, when you introduced me, he said honey badger. The reason why I use the honey badger imagery is because the honey badger has been actually rated as the most ferocious animal in the animal kingdom. It's the size of a small dog, yet it is so intense that lions are afraid to approach it just because of its fierceness. Well, be as ideologically fierce as that. I'm not suggesting that you be physically violent, but if there's a set of principles that you truly believe uh, believe in, don't cower away, don't be a wimp, don't suck your thumb in a fetal position, be a honey badger.
2: We call them courageous conversations on the show. And I'm often talking about with people with feedback, they'll say, oh, but Maria, I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. And I said, yeah, but you can have a courageous conversation in the line at the supermarket.
4: Exactly right. There you go.
2: Yeah. And you, I just want to cycle back to the parasitic mind. I have read out a passage and I refer to it often here on this show about the ostrich parasitic syndrome, because that seems to be quite endemic in this country, especially at the moment. Just explain to the listeners what that is and how you can actually hopefully pull some heads out of sands or, you know, out of asses, as I like to say.
4: Yes, so let's suppose I were to show you that since 9-11 alone, there have been over 35,000 terror attacks in nearly 70 countries. Those 70 countries vary in every possible way that two countries could vary on, ethnically, racially, politically, socioeconomically, uh, temperature-wise, anything you want, they vary. There is one key unifying theme as to what is the identity or motive of the person who has committed that. It's a religious ideology that shh, we're not going to mention because it's, it would be phobic to do so now here comes the super smart the highfalutin the, the 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 intellectuals with the progressive lisp explaining to us that ahmad hussein muhammad when he quoted his uh, religious text to justify why he did committed the particular attack That's actually not the reason why it happened. It was due to lack of art exposure. Because which of us has not decided to join ISIS and throw gays off rooftops if we weren't exposed to enough Picassos? That's a straight causal link. Bill Nye, the super smart science guy, explained to us that the Bataclan attack in Paris and and the, the, the civil war in Syria was actually very clearly caused by climate change. It was lack of solar panels that caused that. That's what ostrich parasitic syndrome is. There is no amount of evidence that could ever convince my lying eyes of what the truth is, because it is simply too difficult for me to accept that. And therefore, I bury metaphorically speaking my head in the sand and I go, la, 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 I don't wanna hear it. By the way, uh, in the in the parasitic mind, I list all of the quote reasons that have been offered for those thirty five thousand attacks, thirty five thousand plus, and it really is. I mean, people people sometimes write to me and say, "Well, did you? Is that just you being satirical?" No, I actually got those from published sources, right? So it's I can I can cite all of those references. So it's due to lack of art exposure. It's climate change. It's beard bullying. Right, the the San Bernardino attack was because the guy had a big beard, and at work he was constantly, you know, told derogatory things about his beard. That's why he ended up going and, you know, killing a bunch of people. So it is so laughable, it is so outlandish that I thought, well, what could clearly demonstrate this desire to ignore reality, and hence I coined it Ostrich Parasitic Syndrome.
2: I know Matthias Dismut sort of kind of calls it a mass formation. Like, for I mean, he talks about it on a much larger scale with the COVID crisis. His solution to it is, in the book, he wasn't particularly definitive. I think he's become more definitive over time. But he did talk about interrupting the signals. How do you see interrupting that? Because I know here in this country at the moment, there are a lot of heads and a lot of sand, yes. that, and w- the station was created as a way to disrupt that signal. So, how do you, how do we do that in our ev- everyday lives?
4: So, what I'm going to offer as a vaccine against this stuff presupposes that one thing has to happen: that the person with whom I am interacting is intellectually honest enough to grant me the courtesy of hearing me out. If they literally say la 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 there's I'm not going to pay it then then they're impenetrable. They I cannot reach them. So with that caveat, let me offer uh, if you'll forgive me it'll be a slightly long explanation. Uh so in chapter 7 of the parasitic mind I the chapter is titled how to seek truth. And I basically, because truth is ultimately the antidote to parasitic ideas, but then how do we seek truth? And so I argue there that there is an epistemological tool that we can use to seek truth. And I call it nomological networks of cumulative evidence. So it's it's a mouthful, but it really truly captures what you need to do to, to, to tackle some of these thorny issues. So let me give it, the best way to demonstrate it is via an example. So let's suppose I wanted to prove to you that uh, toy preferences have a sex specificity because of biological and evolutionary reasons. In other words, little boys typically on average prefer certain types of toys and little girls prefer other types of toys. And it's not because mommy and daddy are sexist pigs who are promulgating patriarchal gender roles, okay? Which is by the way, the standard explanation that social scientists give. The reason why Bubba can bench press more weights than Linda is because very early he learned how to play rough rough and tumble with the trucks and little Linda learned how to play gently and you know, in a nurturing manner, with uh, with the the pink doll, and that's what then causes the downstream effect of him being able to bench press more. I mean, it is so insane that it, it you you really wonder. I mean, are they true? They are parasitized. Okay, so now I want to prove to you that it's not true. How would I go about doing that? So number one, I can get you data from developmental psychology showing you that little children who are too young to be socialized, by definition, it could not be due to social construction, they already exhibit those sex-specific toy preferences. So already just that one piece of evidence is enough to blow the thing out of the water. But I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to build you an unassailable network of triangulated evidence. I can get you data from vervet monkeys and rhesus monkeys and chimpanzees showing you that their infants exhibit the same sex-specific toy preferences as human infants. I can get you data from completely different cultures that have nothing to do with the West showing you that they exhibit the same sex-specific toy preferences. I can get you data from 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece and ancient Rome where on mausoleums and funerary monuments, little children are depicted playing with the exact same sex-specific toy preferences. I'll do one more, although the network is even much bigger than that. I can get you data from pediatric endocrinology, whereby little girls who suffer from congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is a endocrinological disorder that masculinizes the behaviors of little girls, while little girls who suffer from this condition have toy preferences that are akin to those of boys. So look what I've done, I've gotten you data from across disciplines, across methodologies, across cultures, across species, across time periods, all of which triangulate to my position being the vertical one. So that's how I'm able to walk into forums where I'm expecting that people are going to be hostile, but I walk in with the confidence of someone who's 75 feet tall, why? Because I have built the requisite nomological network to be able to debate you on that. Now, interestingly, that also allows me to be epistemologically humble in that I know what I know and I know what I don't know. If right now you were to ask me a question such as, well, Canada was one of the first countries to legalize marijuana. What have been what have what have been the the downstream effects of that? I would answer very honestly, well, unfortunately, I don't know enough about this topic. I haven't built the requisite network to offer you something definitive. But when I know, I know and good luck to you if you want to debate me. So I think the difficulty in what I'm proposing as a mind vaccine is that, as you can see, it requires a lot of cognitive effort on the on my part to build the network. And you, as my interlocutor, has to have the intellectual decency to allow me to sh- show you the network. If you don't do that, then my mind vaccine won't work. And that's the problem is that for most people, they just scream at each other. They talk past each other. Whereas I'm offering a way by which I can sit down without any hysteria, lay out the evidence, and then I could flip you to my way of thinking.
2: So how does humor play into that? Because you were able to spread that truth using humor. What's the importance of humor in getting that truth out there, that truth vaccine out?
4: Yeah, so uh, humor is an incredibly, I, I, I say that humor is akin to the surgeon's scalpel cutting through warm butter. It has a way of, in a very adroit manner, cutting through bullshit. That's why dictators, the first people that they want to eradicate are the satirists. They don't look for the guys who have the biggest muscles because those guys we can take care of easily. That's not hard. I because the dictator has bigger muscles than the guys who have big muscles. He holds all the power in terms of uh you know, dishing out violence. But the sharp tongue, the the poisonous, stingy pen of the satirist that's really dangerous because that's what can bring down my ideology as a dictator. So humor is an inc- if, if done properly. So I'm, and under humor, I'm putting also satire, sarcasm, mockery, all of these things under the rubric of humor are an incredibly persuasive persuasive strategy if uh, if dished out appropriately. It, it's so powerful that whenever so when I'm stopped. Say by someone who recognizes me on the on the street, I would say one out of two times the thing that they will you know thank me for, which I almost feel offended by. It won't be oh my god I love the profundity of your scientific output, or it'll be oh my god I love how you mock the 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 woke people with your fake self flagellation. I love how you hide under the desk pretending that you're hysterically afraid because that's punchy. It cuts through the bullshit. That's why, by the way, when I usually interact with someone and I mock them into oblivion, that's what gets them the most angry. There's nothing more stingy than when you arm your derision and mockery at someone. That's what really hurts. That's why it's effective.
2: Now, before we disappear, there's two questions that I have left. One is there were eight pillars that you've had in the book in terms of finding happiness. For you, what is the most important?
4: Well, it's hard to say the most, but probably uh, the ones that are most digestible for people is finding the right spouse and finding the right job. And the reason why I'm gonna, since you're asking me to kind of mention one of the chapters, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm saying those is because, so you wake up in the morning, the first thing that happens is you're waking up next to someone. If that person is someone that you like, well, that's a good way to start the day. Now I go off, out of bed and I go to a profession that if it brings me existential bliss, now I'm really happy as I'm away from that bed. Then I return to that bed to that person that I really like. Well, if I can make those decisions properly, then I've somewhat cracked the secret to happiness. Now, w- what are some ways by which I can try to ensure that I'm making the right choice, whether it be for spouse or for job? So I argue that so for, let's do mate choice first. Uh, there are two opposing maxims in evolutionary psychology when it comes to mate choice, there's the opposite opposites attract maxim, and then there's the birds of a feather flock together maxim. And it turns out that for long-term success of a marriage, it's overwhelmingly the case that birds of a feather flock together. Now, the question is flocking on which feathers? What, what are you trying to assort? Here, you're talking about having shared belief systems, share foundational values. It becomes a lot more difficult for a union to be successful if some of these foundational values we completely disagree on. Doesn't mean that we can't overcome it, but statistically speaking, it becomes that much harder. When it comes to the optimal way to, to be happy in your job, I argue that there are two metrics that are really important. Number one, all other things equal any job that grants you the possibility to instantiate your creative impulse is one that's gonna give you purpose and meaning. So you could be a chef, you could be a stand-up comic, you could be an architect, you could be a podcaster or an author and professor. Each of these people are doing very, very different jobs, but they're all immersed within their domains in the act of creation, of creativity. That gives me purpose and meaning. The other thing I would say is a job that grants you temporal freedom. So think of the factory worker who has, uh, the lack of dignity to even decide when he or she can take a bathroom break. It's mandated at 10, 15, you get a five minute bathroom break. At 12, you get a 30 minute break to eat, right? Versus my reality, which is I probably work harder than most people. I work very long days, very long hours in a day, but, I'm vagabonding, now I go off to the cafe for four hours to work on the idea for my next book, then I have a meeting with a graduate student to discuss some really nice ideas, then I have a chat with a lovely radio host in New Zealand, and then I'm off, right? So I'm in French you say flaneur, you're vagabonding. And the fact that I've got this ability to kind of float around, even though I'm always working hard, gives me a great sense of personal agency. So to the extent that you can hit those marks, you're well on your way to being happy.
2: Excellent. And the other thing that you mentioned in the book, of course, was dogs. And I was quite pleased to hear you mentioned the English Mastiff in your book because I happen to own an English Mastiff and a bulldog. I was a little perturbed though because I'd like to think I do not look like either of my dogs, but (laughs) I looked at a checklist. So as I was going through the book, I was checking things off. I stable decision with my spouse and partner check you know happy with my work check and then the dogs came and i thought ah oh, trifecta for happiness marie you've won uh, oh so- i
4: almost can't think forgive me for interrupting you, i almost can't think of a more direct way to have an infusion of happiness in your life than to interact with the dog they're built to make you happy
2: They certainly are. Now, the book, of course, is The Sad Truth to Happiness. It is available here in this country via Amazon, and hopefully it will also be available uh, with some key book sellers. It is looking like Paper Plus and Wickles also will be carrying that. It is out now. I purchased purchased it on Audible, so you can also listen to it as well. I'm a hand-knitter-gad, so that's why I like um, the Audible books, so I can knit So mindfulness for the knitting and mindfulness for the mind at the same time. Anything else that you can leave us to inspire us before we go here in New Zealand?
4: Uh, Well, keep fighting the woke government that you have. Uh, We deserve to live free, dignified lives. We don't need governmental intrusion into the minutiae of our lives. I should mention, by the way, that I spent two weeks in New Zealand, my first sabbatical ever in 2001. I spent five weeks in Australia, two weeks in New Zealand. And notwithstanding your warning that I would be equally unhappy in New Zealand, you do have a beautiful country and I look forward to one day returning to it.
2: Oh, we would love to host you. That would certainly be an absolute joy. This has been Gad Sad here on Counterculture. Now, I don't want anybody to disappear. Coming up in a moment, I'm going to let you know how you could win a copy of The Sad Truth to Happiness here exclusively on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Thanks, Gad.
4: Thank you so much. Cheers.
2: Would you like to win a copy of Gad's new book, The Sad Truth About Happiness? Then you need to send us your happiness hack. Describe in a hundred words or less your surefire guaranteed secret to happiness. Email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio or text 2057. Get your entries in by Monday the 16th and I'll read out the winning answers here on next week's show.
3: Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radioslash members and join now.
2: Welcome along. This is Counterculture here with Marie on RCR. Another great guest for you this morning, the Collective Shout Youth Advocate via the Way of Australia, Daniel Principe. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture. How are you?
1: So good this morning, Marie. Lovely to speak with you.
2: It is so great to speak with you. I got put on to you by the wonderful Ellie Marie Diamond, which I spoke to several weeks ago. She talked about all the different things that you've been doing and the work that you've been doing. So give our listeners a little susan of what Daniel does of a day.
1: Sure. Well, I work for an organization called Collective Shout, which is a grassroots movement against exploitation in all its forms. And we do three things. We advocate. Uh, So we advocate politically, through policy, Uh, We campaign against corporations, advertisers, marketers that objectify and sexualize to sell their products. Uh, And we also educate. And that's the part that I spend most of my days focusing on is working with schools, communities, uh, pretty much whoever is open to a conversation, looking at, well, what are the cultural forces really harming young people? But let's be honest, all of us that don't set us up for healthy relationships, healthy ideas about masculinity, healthy ideas about sexuality. And what can we do about that? But let's diagnose it. Properly
2: first. Mm -hmm. And those conversations is like many conversations today have become verboten. And -hmm. you have to work really hard, not only in person, but in other spaces to have them. Are you struggling to be able to have those conversations or have you still been able to get access?
1: Uh, I'm pretty fortunate. I mean, I've already reached 11,500 boys this year, which is the same amount as last year to this point of the year. And we've been so fortunate to engage with schools all across Australia in every state and territory. And people are open to this conversation. I think a lot of people are open to the whole conversation about consent, which we say, yeah, we're happy to talk about consent, respectful relationships. That's a bit more palatable. But we say, look, if we don't address the elephant in the room, which is pornography and sexualization, we're not actually going to equip people to have healthy relationships. If we don't actually dispel some of the bad and harmful ideas that are limiting people's capacity to form relationships based on empathy and mutual respect and mutual care, uh, we're not actually going to achieve that. Because let's be honest, like, consent is a bare minimum. And if you have to write on a board, like don't molest an unconscious person or don't sexually assault someone, uh, who's going to get that message? Like, Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. we we actually have to go to, well, what is actually shaping those ideas where some people feel that they're entitled to the bodies of other people? Some people feel entitled to be violently sexual towards others, Mm. Uh, and let's unpack that. Let's look at where that formation comes from, from a very young age, and so for me, in terms of the challenges that you've you've noted, it's actually trying to dispel a lot of the cultural baggage that goes on in a room before I even open my mouth for the presentation, that the boys have come into a session, they think, oh, is this going to be another sex talk? Is this going to be a how bad are boys, all boys are rapists kind of talk? And I get it. Mm. I I get to some extent why they may have those preconceived notions. And so to be honest with you, I spend anywhere between 10 to 15 minutes dispelling myths trying to highlight those kind of hidden elephants in the room to say, hey, this isn't that. What I'm here to do today, and I say this over and over again, is I say, boys, I'm here to challenge the culture but champion you as young men. And I repeat that and repeat that to say, hey, what I'm going to do is ask ourselves, are you being set up as young men with the right role models, the right encouragements, the right challenge, which we all need to become better young men, healthier young men? Are Are you actually... Uh, receiving that from the world around you, from your social, family, community, cultural context, is that equipping you to thrive in yourself, in your relationships with your mates and with women and girls, irrespective of your romantic interests? Is that actually equipping you? And if not, what do we need to do to actually serve you boys to set you up to succeed in life?
2: Yeah, so you've now hit on a point that is really near and dear to my heart. So I have the two boys, 15 and 17. They, like any teenager, wants to find their place in the world. And as young men, the messaging now that they're getting from social media is that they are toxic. How do you foster healthy masculinity in this current cultural environment?
1: Totally. It, it is a question of our age, right? And, and I understand it. And that's why I have to dispel so much before I get going because boys have either heard this, and there's so much culture war stuff that I don't like that doesn't help, and it doesn't help someone like me who's coming in saying, boys, I reckon you guys can be courageous and kind. I reckon you guys can be loving and resilient. I reckon you guys can show empathy and be a man of integrity. Like, they're not mutually exclusive, and and what can we do about that? But I think they've either heard one extreme or the other, where being a man is all about dominance, power, control, hooking up with girls beating up on other boys and then the opposite is actually boys are just terrible they're horrible they're hopeless like there's no place for them and i'm kind of like hey (laughs) there's actually a big massive paddock in the middle where men have talked forever about virtue You know, And and that's obviously where we get the root word man from uh, is about virtue. And let's be honest, all all virtues apply to all people. Uh, But how do we have a conversation that focuses on that? And what can we do to centre that and how boys make sense of their masculinity, their relationships, their sexuality? And so, yeah, I feel for young boys who are disengaged, um, who feel like maybe there's not a place for them um, in, in the culture at the moment. And whether that perception is... A true perception or not, and this is what I say to people who reject that: as I say, look, whether you think that is a fair conclusion that they've come to as a 15, 16-year-old man, whether you think that is reasonable, whether you think they themselves are playing the victim, there are a lot of young boys that feel that way, and if all you do is then berate them or tell them they shouldn't feel that way, we're just not going to get anywhere. Mm. We're not actually going to help take them on the journey to, to, to equip them to be good and decent, respectful young men, which 99% of boys tell me that's how they want to show up in this world. And so I've said to others, you know, to, to bring back to that word toxic, you know, I, I don't ever use the word toxic masculinity, uh, the expression rather. I know what it means. I understand it. But to a young person, a young man, they just think that means you're saying all men are trash. All men are toxic. All men are awful. Now I see it as a critique to say, do you know what? There's some pretty unhealthy ways that we as men can show up in the world, and and let's look at that. Let's look at what makes us this epidemic of male loneliness. And so I try and steer away from those kinds of of, of phrases because until we have a shared understanding of language and concepts, and until boys know we care. And, and I have to spend a lot of time trying to reassure them and, and convince them um, and hopefully show over time like I actually care for them and want them to thrive. Mm. And so, yeah, I think there is a lot of baggage in that place. And one of the things I always say to the adults in the room when we're doing either staff PDs or community parent events or podcasts just like this is we have to start from a place of empathy for young men. Like let's be honest, puberty, adolescence, Making sense of our identity, our desires, who we are is hard for every generation. But I didn't do it with a smartphone, with social media, sexualized media, at a click of a button. I had a Nokia 3310 in my pocket as my first phone in year 10. Limits the amount of harm and carnage you can inflict on yourself and on others. I was bullied a lot during high school. But, hey, at least when I got on that number 60 bus home, it stopped. It doesn't stop for these kids. There are no barriers and safety rails for them. And so for me, I always say we have to start from a place of compassion, of empathy, of recognising this generation has some serious hurdles to them thriving in themselves and their relationships. And if we don't start there, I think it just comes across as judgment, as shame, and not an invitation to say, hey, boys, what can we do to set you up to thrive?
2: Gosh, now you've set a rich tapestry. I've got so much here I want to unpick. So (laughs) let's start with the beginning, you mentioned cultural baggage. When you walked into a room, mm. you often have to unpack cultural baggage. Hit me with some of what. What does that look like from your experience? Uh,
1: I can only I can only assume, you know, from from things that I see swirling around. So, again, is this a boy bashing exercise? Is this all men are trash, or not all men? Or is this a is this an exercise in uh, hating on some of our heroes and uh, perhaps saying that? all boys are rapists, these sorts of things, Mm -hmm. and and boys are never the victims of crimes or harms or these sorts of things. And so there there is that that needs to be undone and say, hey, let's let's talk about this. And I I can only invite them to be open to what the conversation is and to show them that that's not what I'm then going to do. I tell them I'm not going to do that, and hopefully they see that in the workshops and the conversations that we have, that this is a broader project about setting them up as young men, realising that so many of these cultural forces that I want to add, they didn't create. They mm-hmm. didn't create social media, pornography, the TikTok. They didn't create these huge social forces that harm them, but they're navigating it. And I hear from year four, year five, year six boys having to deal with sex bots and pop-ups for pornography, being exposed to OnlyFans adverts, year four, year five, year six. They didn't create that, but they are having to navigate that make healthy decisions and if that then influences them if they then get their ideas about what it is to be a man from horrific role models on tiktok and pornography and they act out on that well they're going to become potentially pretty dangerous young men who harm others and harm themselves but we've created that landscape for them and so that's what i want them to to see that this is an invitation Uh, And so, yeah, they are some of the cultural baggage and they've probably heard things uh, in the culture wars about boys and they've probably heard the most polemical comments because obviously that's the stuff that does the rounds on TikTok.
2: Yeah, yeah, it certainly does. I mean, let's park the social media just there for a second because I know Mm -hmm. what direction that that we could be here all day. Absent fathers. Mm -hmm. Now, that is certainly something because, you know, I mean, I'm – probably your parents' age, even potentially a bit older. And for us, there was the, the divorce rate was one thing. It's a completely different thing now. Absentee fathers is are vastly more common than they ever have been. Mm-hmm. What is the impact now that we have an entire generation who have grown up with fathers not in the household or they're on a permanent basis making?
1: It's a, it's a significant challenge and, and there's a few nuances I want to bring to that. I was I was raised in a separated home. My parents divorced when I was seven and I felt the impacts of that. I didn't have a continuity of a man or men because, let's be honest, it takes a village and that's not a cliche. Boys need lots of touch points of healthy male role models in their life because it's not just on one dad. It, there has to be other men in the community that help young men uh, navigate those key markers and, and transition from boyhood to manhood but i i experienced that myself and and i see it everywhere and the thing is is some people say look we need the presence of more men and i've seen some of the memes and one of them was circulated to me last night you know that there's an absence of masculinity and i i said back to my friend who said, sent that to me i said to him i agree but i want to be clear it's an absence of healthy men i'm not just interested in having people like boy, like men in boys lives just for the sake of it and filling the gaps like It's not just, hey, any man will do. Surely we want good men. And that's the task for each and every one of us to take that responsibility. We're not going to be perfect. No one's asking for that. But at least a man who's aware of himself, as committed to a vision for who he needs to be for himself, for his family, is loving, is reflective, is humble, is teachable. Like, it's not just the sake of, oh, yeah, just put men in boys' lives, because there's some pretty volatile and harmful men out there, and I see the carnage of how they've impacted young men and young girls. And so, it's not just any man will do. Hopefully, the goal is a, a good enough man or a decent enough man or a maturing man who is having an active, intentional presence in a young boy's life to help him navigate that and doing that with other men. And so, yeah, there there is an absence, but I know and I'm sure every listener here is like, no, there are some, not, not just men, but there's some harmful women to, who should not be in the presence of young boys or young girls' lives, right? They're an actual, they're going to do more harm than good. Hence, people end up in prisons and hence people, you know, end up fleeing from certain family dynamics. So, yeah, there is fatherlessness and that is a huge cultural problem. But I think the bigger problem is like we need to raise more good men and we need men to get together with other men and help them through that because we all, you know, don't have it all worked out and we all are being shaped by the culture and the role models and the examples that went before us. And so I think that's a really important reflection piece uh, because yeah we want good men in the lives of boys
2: yeah and as you just said as harmful as not having potentially good solid male role models in young men's lives are just as dangerous are overprotective helicopter mothers that don't allow boys to test and experience risk There was a woman here who passed away several years ago, but she was a former prison officer called Celia Lashley, and she wrote a number of books based around what she had witnessed of young men entering the corrections system, what was the pathway that led them there. And one of the things she talked about was the absenteeism of fathers, but also the fact that those role models weren't there to help these young men navigate risk. So how do you, important do you see risk and the boundaries that young men need to push will come up against in order to see what is right, what is wrong, what is mm. worthy, what to aspire to?
1: Yeah, I think it's, uh, I, I'm not an expert on this. My observations, I think, with helicopter parents, and I've, I've heard it, you know, bantered about in different places, and I, I agree with it. I think it's probably symptomatic of the fact that we are living in a very anxious time. I feel like we just live in a in a culture of anxiety, of fear, for so many different reasons and in so many different ways. And, yeah, there is this sense of, yeah, boys needing to take proportionate risks. And I'll just speak from my own perspective. I was a very anxious child. I was very, very reluctant to do anything outside of my comfort zone. But I didn't have those um, male figures there to help me through those p- especially pivotal times in, I think, pre-puberty, through puberty, those kind of adolescent years as to how to actually do that and get out of my comfort zone. And, and I guess in a sense, something that I had to learn too late in life is prove myself to myself. So, take risks, whether that's emotionally, relationally, physically. And risk, maybe get yeah, one word for it, but challenge yourself. Mm. You know, that's ultimately what it is, you know, uh, to step out and, and endeavor and to dare recognizing you could fail and as someone who's a recovering perfectionist you know like that's that is the, that's actually the risk that's the fear is if you're secure in yourself you realize that Not doing something perfectly, it doesn't mean that you are somehow horrible or bad. But I think giving children enough self-esteem and self-respect by endeavouring, by daring, finding out their strengths and helping them to master that in different areas and and being as well-rounded as possible, knowing that some kids will be more drawn to art or music or drama or sport or swimming and and cultivating that and helping them still to cultivate the, the social and emotional skills that we all need to thrive in life, both personally and professionally. And so I think, yeah, there is a huge task for all of us. And, you know, that's why people have talked about, you know, the coddling. Uh, of the American mind and these sorts of things that Jonathan Haidt's written about and there is this idea that we actually need to expose people to things that just get them out of their comfort zones emotionally and mentally and physically which is where they find their growth which is where they find that sense of self-respect and self-esteem which sets them up to see other things that meet them in life as opportunities rather than threats Mm. and the reality is it's something that I've observed and in my work is like what worries me is you have the boys who are deeply insecure and they can look like the tough guys and they can look like the the kind of more softer, sensitive guys. And I worry mostly about whoever those young men are because insecurities are packaged in all different shapes and sizes. But if we don't help them resolve those, if we don't help them take them on that journey, and this for me is the the rite of passage piece, helping uh, all young people, but especially boys to challenge themselves and to go on that journey and to be welcomed into a community of men because they have, in a sense, proved themselves. Now, they're not proving themselves to be deemed worthy of love or care you know but they're they're proving themselves for their own sake as i said that was my journey i had to prove myself to myself by doing some hard things in life and failing and getting uncomfortable and and continuing on that process, which I think we stay on for life. And so I think there's a huge need for that. I, I see there's like quite a, a huge apathy in young men. How do we actually help channel what should be their natural desire to adventure, to dare, to create uh, to build, um, to take risks and not destructively because it seems like that seems to be the outlet in Western culture. And I saw the researcher in Australia that it's one of the four different ways that boys, you know, kind of prove that they're a man in unhealthy ways, which is having sex, getting into fights, risk-taking dangerous behaviour and drinking alcohol. And as I say to boys, call me an idealist, I happen to think that there's more to being a man than do you do stupid things and do you drink beer.
2: Yeah, mateship is something that we I talk to with my sons all the time. So they're both in a single-sex Catholic school. Now, we're not Catholic, but mm-hmm. I'm very, very staunch on single-sex education, especially for boys. And mm-hmm. part of the reason for that is that sense of mateship and connection with other young men mm-hmm. that they can have physically, interpersonally, not through a screen. From a parental perspective, I think a lot of, and boy, I've been guilty of it too, in your uh, attempt to keep children safe it's a lot easier to wrap them up at home in a safe environment and pop them in front of a screen than go out in the world dangerously where they could skin a knee or fall off a jungle gym or do something like that so Mm -hmm. we we go for the safe option because we think that we're looking after them when really we're doing them a disservice and that's something I think as parents we have to be really mindful of. So in terms of healthy mateship, in-person mateships, and not mateship that's sitting on a Discord server talking smack mm. about the latest game. For listeners that are not aware, just as we started this, I had to say to Daniel, give me one second, because I had four of them sitting in the room right behind me on an electric guitar, and I'm like, boys, no, I can't do this right now. You know, how that in-person mateship, how important is that?
1: Yeah, but how good is that that that's what they were doing together? You know, like we need boys to, to get together to find common interests and actually do that in person as much as possible. And again, you know, every boy's wired differently. They don't all like the same things, uh, but to find their tribe, to find their community and to actually do things together I think is just so important. I think boys are so scared that their mates are going to throw them under the bus. I see that and I see a lot of the ugly stuff. You know, so people throw the word toxic around, but I see a lot of it and I call it performative toxicity. Boys feeling like they have to act out a certain way to throw their mates under a bus to one up him or one up a girl or impress their mates in front of a girl, but it's not actually who they are. And it's trying to find ways for boys to actually keep their values, keep their integrity, do things that are right by them. They're going to make mistakes. We have to have lots of bandwidth and grace for that in life uh, as they learn, as we all do. Uh, But to find a a community for them of other young men who are going to help them thrive, to, to choose the good and healthy things more routinely than the harmful and destructive things. And that's why I say to boys everywhere, choose your mates wisely. Choose your friends wisely and choose your heroes wisely. And it's so important. I I see when the boys have breakthrough moments where they feel they can actually be honest about themselves and what's going on and see their mates rally around them. I think some of the most precious moments I've seen have been boys from anywhere from year six all the way into year 12, rally around a guy who's going through a tough moment. And and for him to not be met with, oh, I thought the boys were going to throw me under the bus because I'm having a moment of honesty or transparency or, or realness, uh, but actually being met with care and, hey, mate, we've got your back and we're loyal and these sorts of things. And so, I think for me, it's like, Boys want that, but I think they're so scared that that's not what they're going to find if they are struggling. Hence, we have a loneliness epidemic in men and men and boys who aren't coping isolate. Now, I'm not suggesting every boy is going to write a blog or open up about his feelings online. I certainly don't think that. But I just hope that I say to them, do you have one mate that's got your back and do you have his back? That he could rely on that he could trust that you'd be aware if he was struggling at home at school in his relationships like that you guys could look out for each other and be real with one another and i think for me like normalizing that and talking about that and saying that that's actually what what men do and to find other ways it could be two blokes sitting in silence could be two guys having a chat over a meal. Could be two guys just kicking the footy talking together. I don't know what it looks like, but having those outlets where you actually know you can be your real self and be honest with another person who actually cares for you and wants good for you, that's what I want boys to find in life. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and in mates and in men and, and dads and father figures, older them as well, doesn't need to be with everybody but somebody And because I feel like that's the thing that breaks my heart is knowing how many boys feel like they can't be their real honest selves with other boys and men and they're craving it. They're just too scared until one brave, courageous soul enters into the fray and goes, Hey, you know, this is what's going on for me or I'm struggling or I've lost a loved one or I've gone through a hard breakup or something like that. And I think for me, Uh, when boys are encouraged to to welcome that and to see that and to see how it actually benefits all of them to meet each other with a sense of I've got you, mate, like Mm. beautiful things happen, good things happen. Uh, and it puts everybody at ease rather than being on guard, got their masks on, who can I trust, who's going to throw me under the bus? Because the boys open up to me one-on-one privately afterwards, but they're, they're very much concerned, you know, do, does someone really have my back when push comes to shove, like once the banter dies down? And I think for us, I think it's really important that grown men model that. You know, I was down at the markets on on Saturday morning last week here in Sydney in Bondi. And I just love seeing a group of, you know, probably 60-something year old men, six or seven of them sitting around a bench just chatting. They had a baguette that they were cutting up and sharing and they were just chatting. And I think there's something really healthy about that that I was drawn to because I was like, gosh, I hope when I'm that age, you know, I've got a group of other men my own age where we can just go sit in the park. You know, it's not about alcohol. It's not about banter. We're just sitting there, you know, having a snack, Mm -hmm. chatting over a coffee and to have have friendships like that. So I actually think the older generation owes it to model that, to Mm -hmm. model healthier ways that men actually show up for one another. And it will look different for everybody. I recognize I'm a pretty expressive verbal processing kind of guy and I don't expect every other bloke to be like me. I don't. That's okay. Other guys are really happy to just sit. So I'm happy to just go fishing together and maybe share the odd word. Like I've got friends who are farmers, you know, and they show up in life very different to me. But you know what? I'll go and sit in a truck with them for a few hours and it's amazing the conversations we have.
2: Yeah, and that's, you know, and this is the thing with these conversations too, because so many conversations have been taken off the table because of of cultural sensitivities, say. That's a polite way I'll I'll place it. And it is, and that's the difficulty because, I mean, a lot of men aren't naturally expressive. So Mm. to get them to open up or to all of a sudden say for them and their mental processing to go, well, I, I want to talk, I can't, oh no, I can't talk about that. And oh no, if I say that, that they'll come down on me. And it is really, really difficult. And I do wonder about um, loneliness. Loneliness concerns mm. me. This country mm. has the highest rate of male youth suicide per capita in the world. It is really seriously concerning. We've got advocates here, who um, a comedian in particular, who is really working so hard in that space. And one of the things that is holding him back is this whole expression of critical social justice, which unfortunately is predominantly Mm over-feminized, and they're the ones that perceive this concept of toxic masculinity, when actually, in fact, as you've so eloquently pointed out, if you foster it and grow it and nurture it and feed it, Mm -hmm. it can be far from toxic. So Mm -hmm. it is a real mind feel for our young men.
1: I think so. And yeah, I I don't know the exact examples that that comedian would perhaps be referring to, but Yeah, I I think there is a sense of, like, we actually just need to be able to be real and and, and to kind of disrupt any of those Mm -hmm. barriers. I think a lot of it, though, is the socialisation of boys and men where they're rewarded for callousness, they're rewarded to perform, like I said, this more um, cruel and nasty vision of of what it is to be a man and not necessarily aspire to decency, to respect, to integrity. Because I say to the boys, like, I want to be a safe man. I want to be someone who the men in my life the women in my life go yeah he's safe he's loyal he's trustworthy and and not just physically but emotionally too and I think again it's like putting that on the table to actually be like not only is that good for you Like, it's actually like it's good for everybody, you know, to show up in those ways. And so I think it is about modeling it and encouraging it. And yeah, being able to have honest conversations. And I'm very big on not policing how people express certain things and allowing them to feel and talk, because I know I've needed that at times to make sense of my own experiences and my own thoughts. And it's also why I come down pretty hard on boys who go to shame or bully another boy who's opened up or not said something perfectly or hasn't understood a concept or I really don't like that because that is that way that culture that male culture just shuts down openness shuts down honesty mm-hmm. because the other boys jump on him if he doesn't say something perfectly or stumbles through his words or maybe if he's asking me a question where he hasn't comprehended something in the session and and You know, that for me is actually part of that social framework to actually push back on that. Because if every time someone is trying to make sense of something for themselves and we shame them, we kind of throw them under the bus, like it continues to reinforce this message that I can't talk and I can't open up. And understandably, and it's not the sole reason, but it is part of the reason we seem to have a mental health crisis in in young boys and loneliness. And sadly, because of the way boys are socialized, they do resort to more distress and violent ways to deal with the pain, grief, tragedy, loss, you know, that we all go through in life. And that's why I say to boys that I can't wave a magic wand and make all that stuff go away. I've had to go through my own pain and grief and loss and my own disappointments in myself or others Mm -hmm. and hurts. And it's like, what do we do with that? Where do we go with that? And for me, that's actually the task for all of us as a society to actually create ways that we can normalise boys and men finding places to deal with life in healthy ways. They're not going to deal with it perfectly. But can we put it on the table that there's actually healthier ways? And that's what I say to the boys, like to, to find who are those people, what are those outlets, what are those things that aren't destructive but are actually constructive when we're processing and, mm. and dealing with life. And so, yeah, I think, I think we do have to create a bigger bandwidth on, on creating space for boys to, to have those pockets and those places And for me, it's amazing what actually comes up. And when we kind of give that the space and time for for boys to lean into that.
2: Digital perfection. How Mm. dangerous is being continuously bombarded with these so-called perfect lives for our young, not just young men, but young men and young women?
1: It harms all of us and I'm and it harms me too. And I'm I'm a, more aware of it. And I studied propaganda and I did a postgrad in media and PR and I spend my days analysing messages and yet I know I can spend some time scrolling on social media going, Oh, wish my life looked like that or wish I looked like that or wish I was doing that right now and I can't imagine it as a younger person who hasn't yet fully developed the critical space and, and the kind of bandwidth and the, you know, emotional, mental maturity to deal with this sort of stuff. It's huge. And so much of what boys are also bombarded with is how their body shape should look. And I'm just real with everybody. Like boys are feeling the pressure to look a certain way. They're more conscious of their penis size than any other generation and no surprises. They're bombarded with other people's anatomy more than any other generation. And so I hear from more boys struggling with body image issues even from the ages of 10 11 12 and and beyond like feeling like they're not big enough they're not manly enough which comes back to these ideas of what it is to be a real man which is both physical and as I listed those four destructive traits that I mentioned earlier whereas I'm wanting to say like we have to create other healthier ways that we can describe manhood and and what it is to be a good or healthy man which is why I always come back to virtue because amidst as you say the, the the kind of perfect idealized visions that they're being saturated with which very much focuses on exterior on perceptions and creating false perceptions i'm so much more interested in interior like who are you when no one else is looking what's the type of man that you are what are your habits how do you spend your time how do people speak of you when the show's over And I think for me, that's the conversations we need to be having with boys is to make it more desirable to have those character traits that are timeless, that are always in vogue, that are always good for them and good for the world. And so, that's what I say to boys. Like, not only do I think it's a good idea for you to kind of be critical of these false ideas of what it is to be a man, that's a lot of bravado, a lot of performance. Um, I think it's a good idea to be loving, to be respectful, to have integrity, to be courageous, to be an upstander, to be kind. Like, they're good ideas, but the research says they're good for them as well. But that takes a culture helping to shift both boys and girls away from everything that's about the screen and about perceptions and. These illusions of what life is like, and actually doing the quite mundane, quiet, habitual work of going after doing good things routinely. But I am seeing a shift in that, and I am seeing both on social media and in discussions, like more people saying, "Like, yeah, let, let's go back to basics. Let's actually mm-hmm. think about what do our habits, what do our relationships say about us, and how can we continue to, to I guess, sow good seeds. You know, to do the right things. And it's not about living a perfect day or a perfect week but is the trajectory of our lives doing the things that are good for us over over a period of time and I feel like that's actually becoming something that's seen as more attractive and more worthwhile as those ongoing lifestyle choices that equip us all, boys, men, girls, women, to Mm -hmm. to actually thrive, to flourish and that's actually the conversation I'm having because I'm usually invited in to talk about masculinity and sexuality and critique a lot of the harmful things that are harming boys but I'm actually more interested in saying, what does it look like for all of us to do a bit of a stop take on our life and actually come up with a vision for us that would actually compel us to do the daily things that actually amount to us thriving in life, knowing that if we do these good things on an ongoing basis, like for our mental health, for our physical health, for our studies or our businesses or our contributions to the world, like the, the results will take care of themselves. But let's just focus on showing up with integrity um, in the day to day, and so that for me is the part that I think we we are seeing traction in, and and, and are encouraging boys to find that as an attractive thing—that consistency in the basics every single day.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting hearing what you're saying because what you're saying is very old-fashioned. It's old-fashioned mm. manners. Yes, it's the sort yes. of things that you know my grandparents would have instilled. And me in the yep. 70s, you know, it's that yep. sort of thing. And it's almost coming full cycle. And I'm, I'm from a Maori Irish household. So it's very loud and social and openness and family was a huge part of my growing up. So I always grew up with very much an open house. I've got a squillion cousins, as you can imagine. It's a big rambling family. My husband does not come from that. Mm-hmm. He comes from a much more tight, tight knit group. With our sons, what we have done is we created a space for them that it's very much an open house. So I will, even if it doesn't necessarily suit my husband or I, we will always have the doors open for the boys and their wonderful group of friends to congregate and come and go and spend time because they need to have that in-person time. And Mm -hmm. half the time, as you said, it could be just sitting around literally shooting the shit, talking utter rubbish Mm -hmm. but it's that that mateship that they have and in terms of like manners and doing things like that what are some of the role models that you're seeing in australia so what would be a good example of uh whether it be someone of high profile or an organization that is sort of leading the way in this
1: space this is an interesting question and I have a controversial answer for that. So it's not because I don't want to answer the question, but if you if you'll hear me out, Marie, um, I'm always very, very reluctant to commend people in the public spotlight that I don't personally know. Now, there are things that I observe from the tidbits that you get on social media or what other people say about all sorts of people, and and I won't name names because the reality is I don't know who they are when the camera's not running. I don't know who they are behind the scenes, how they treat their wife, their children, or the checkout person, or the waiter at a restaurant and and for me, when I am asked, who are your role models, Dan, like there are historical figures that I look back to that I see significant courage and sacrifice for the good of others and the good of the world that inspire me. I'm always interested to say, like, I want to see people who have who have paid a cost for a cause where they've shown courage and sacrifice. That's what I find attractive. They're the people that inspire me and really challenge me. But for me, like when I think about who my role models are, there are people like just everyday mums and dads, you know, yes, professionally but I, I see who they are behind the scenes as best as you can when you don't live with somebody but you see them after a long day at work or you see them wrangling four kids on a Saturday morning and and for me they're the people who I think we get so caught up in who are the high profile people and then when we see a lot of them sadly fall from grace or don't actually live it out because let's be honest we're in a time of reckoning and there's lots of people who have been idolized and idealized out in public who it comes to the that they aren't who they say they are in all sorts of parts of society from Hollywood to the church from sports stars to politicians that people have idealized and so I'm reluctant and that's where I come back to virtues and using that as a framework to be like does this person model love courage justice self-control wisdom do they model that and let's follow that. And no one's going to do it all perfectly. We're all a work mm. in progress. So I'm, for me, also then drawn to what I, people that I can touch and see and, and model. And the reality is, I think if we went more to use those timeless traits to discern who is someone worth aspiring to, I actually think there are more people in our own circles that, hey, we're like, yeah, I, I actually love that person's faithfulness to to keep doing and serving in their community for 40 years. Or I, I love that person's courage to kind of, you know, stand up for, for something that was right. Or I love that person's love, you know, the way they've just continued to be loved loving uh, in life and and to show that not just romantically but to their friends and to their grandparents i I don't know but i'm very much interested in in pointing towards that it's really hard to say that in a cult that idolizes the five million followers on instagram but for me uh, they're the people that i want to advocate for because i think there's a lot of people who embody some of those virtues or a lot of those virtues living pretty quiet lives in our midst and I say this routinely, I think when you see character or traits that you admire in someone, like go and get to know them. Mm. Like actually a person, like ask them questions, you know, how did they become like that or where did they learn that from or what inspired them or what has given them the courage and what's given them the perseverance and what's given them the resolve to keep doing what they're doing and contributing as they are. And I think there's a lot of people in everyday life that demonstrate this and so that's my very long-winded answer as to why I will never vouch for someone in the public eye that I I don't I don't meet them. I don't know them. And uh, I think, yeah, I can't can't actually do that. So, Mm. yeah, I'm more interested in back to basics. What are those timeless traits that we find attractive in men, women, any person that embodies them? And yeah, go and find that. And also historical figures and learning that they didn't necessarily live perfect lives as people who have changed the world, but they also were human too.
2: Mm. So as a parent, if you've got a parent out there, they've got some sons, particularly if they're in that, heading into that difficult zone, that tweeny space before they the hormones really kick in, give them three things, three things as a parent that they can possibly do, simple things at home that will really help solidify their son's journey.
1: I think yeah. modelling it, modelling healthy relationships at home and obviously ideally having a father or father figures that are around that are there that are touch points I think at the end of the day we, we all need that we need to bring other good men and role models into the house that boys see that and it's not just a father and uncle it's like putting those boys those other men in, in a touch touch points there in their in their orbit I think is just so helpful I think just actually having fun with young boys I think just continuing to engage and and inviting them into that. I know they're going to get too cool, but boys, uh, the research is still clear that young people still want to talk to their parents about the big things going on in their life. And so if you still have those open lines of communication, that they're still fun, that they're not shamed for the things when they do muck up or do something stupid or are exposed to something that might harm them online, you know, like to to not actually react and realise that, hey, this is a young person doing their best to make sense of a pretty challenging time so I think fun open communication it doesn't mean that there's not opportunities for you know challenging them and encouraging them to be their best selves but we need to create a space where boys still want to open up and talk so I love what you said Noreen like having the boys come around Mm -hmm. having them feel like this is a safe space for them to hang out and and explore being teenage boys, whether that's playing music together, playing sports together. And so I think that's something that's really, really important. And I think, you know, if people can do it, I think it's really important for all young people to to realise that they're not the centre of the universe and to find a sense of satisfaction and how they can use, like, identifying their gifts and talents and then giving them away to serve others. And so I think, yeah, that gives them a healthy sense of self-respect and a sense of, hey, I'm just a part of the world and I can actually contribute and make the world a better place for others as well. So I think there's a huge avenue to help what that looks like by helping young people identify their strengths and then working out, yeah, how they can actually be a blessing to others, contribute to the world around them and give them a, a sense of buy-in in a very atomized world to realise that they're a part of it and they're also not the centre of it either. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. Hey now, look, we um I mean obviously you're in, in Australia, but if people are wanting some resources online, what are some good resources? Um I have I've had a look at Collective the it looks great. That's a good place to start. Any others that you can also think of?
1: Yeah, there's definitely um, lots of different groups doing some great work for young men. TheLine.org puts out some great resources for young men. Uh, if people want to get in touch with me at Last of lastoftheromans.org, depending on what their particular interests are, like they're more than welcome to reach out and I can send some recommendations from podcasts to resources and just ideas because I'm always like looking and learning from others, Instagram pages that I follow on inspiring ways that parents can help raise good sons you know like so yeah that's all out there there's lots of information we can't do it all but yeah if people want to reach out i'd happily make some recommendations or if there's things that i can like offer in that space
2: awesome look this has been daniel principer from collective shout it's been an absolute joy thank you so much for talking to us this morning thank you again for just reminding us that you know, it's, it's sometimes it's the old-fashioned things, isn't it? It's taking things back to basics, that <laughs> we do the basics right and everything has a funny way of actually lining itself up. So I've really appreciated that. Don't disappear, everybody, this morning. Still great content here to come. As always, a little bit more music, a little bit more talking. And, of course, Woke News of the Week is not too far away either here on Reality Check Radio. Wow, what an impressive young man Daniel is. And his message is so powerful. Honestly, once this interview hits the replays, I will be sharing it far and wide. And I suggest, if you know people raising boys, this interview is a must listen. Love to hear your thoughts on what Daniel had to say. Again, email me at inbox at or text to 2057.
3: The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind the scenes discussions. And also our all new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters In just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference.
2: Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. It's now time for Media Matters with Marty Gibson and myself, of course. Good morning, Marty.
0: Morning, Marie. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing very, very well, and I saw you as you got prepped for this. You're drowning under a weight of newspaper, as I am. It's kind of
0: like a whole lot of um, pages of newspaper that all say the same thing, almost.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: You know, I was thinking about voting for New Zealand first, but just with John Key saying it's maybe not a good idea and all these other people telling me not to, maybe, yeah, maybe I shouldn't.
2: <laughs> well, you've already voted, so you, um, yeah, well.
0: well, yeah, that's actually, I forgot all about that. Well, I guess I can't change my mind now.
2: <laughs> I have never seen anything like this before.
0: Well, it's funny because when you're an oppositional character, where if, if someone tells you to do something, there's an impulse in you to go, you know what, go, you can't understand why everyone else isn't the same way, and, and much less how effective it is on so many people to say, oh, we might cut you out of the herd. Oh, no, anything but that.
2: I think it was the Curia Taxpayers poll that really set the cat amongst the pigeons. So that poll, he came back at 6.9% New Zealand first. The highest that we've seen so far, I mean, they've had, you know, there was the the Sousant of Panic, once he breached the 5%, but there was lots of that, oh, but it's not really going to happen or it may not happen. Now that his numbers keep tracking up, and it's really only New Zealand First and the Greens that are doing this, the panic has now set in. Labour had no policy to campaign on anyway. So for them, this is just easy fodder. And they may stop some of these centrist voters leeching across to New Zealand First. But Christopher Luxon really... Really? I mean, what did him and Chris Bishop think that they were doing? With Did they have a little beer of a night and decide, oh, this is a good idea?
0: Yeah, it's really, really hard to say, isn't it? I still can't quite work that one out. But I mean, I was talking to someone about Luxon the other day, and he, he is kind of like a middle manager. You know, he's got his party lines that he trots out. He's also like someone who's, you know, when you just start out in sales and you're not very good at it, and you tend to talk about features even though you try and remember that features tell and benefits sell, and you're handing your brochures out to people because you can't sell, and you're being really obsequious and nice because you think, well, maybe if they'll like me, they'll buy off me. I think that's uh, where we're at with him. And as I mentioned the other week, I'm seeing the perhaps the the real Christopher Luxon starting to come out now, and that Christopher Luxon, Wants power over people, and he's been pushed hold, you know, pushing it down. He mm. hidden, but he can smell smell the precious.
2: Mm, he can smell the precious, and uh, obviously, they've rolled out John Key. They've set this narrative in motion that you can't trust Winston, that it'll be eight weeks without a decision. All of these things. I mean, gaslighting up the wazoo, I have to say, when you're you're exactly right. He can smell the precious, but ultimately he's gone to the pub. All his mates have gone home and the best looking girls in the bar and he's standing in the corner. He's had one too many drinks. Things got a little bit foggy. And at the end of the day, the only thing that's standing is that cougar in a pinstripe miniskirt in the corner looking at him winking. We've all been there. Yeah, <laughs> and he knows that he's going to have to get into
0: bed with it. Well, you know, there's worse things that can happen.
2: Well, yeah, look, <laughs> I just could not get over. I could not get over moving along. I could not get over, as, again, the game of column inches. Winston ruled all the weekend papers. He's ruled a lot of the information before and prior. I just did a quick tot-up, this is even before getting into the post, but Sunday Star Time, Herald on Saturday, and Herald on Sunday – uh, Vernon Small, Andrea Vance, Tracy Watkins, Heather Duplessy, Allen, Chanel, who just regurgitated a story from the week before, Shane DePoe, Liam Dan, Fran O'Sullivan, Stephen Joyce, Claire Trevitt twice, Adam pierce all they could talk about in one form or another was Winston.
0: Yeah, it's like someone uh, punched into chat GPT, write uh, this story in the style of, then all the names you've just reeled off. Mm. They never cut to the Part of of what's actually bringing people to them. I mean, there's all of this endless talk about what your vote says about you. Comes back to that survey of people's psychology, divided by voters and New Zealand First voters, less likely to believe in climate change. I mean, who doesn't believe in climate change? I'll pick this apart a little bit. The climate changes. It's not a matter of not believing in climate change. It's a matter of not believing that anthropogenic CO2 is the primary driver of climate change, and we can let bankers conduct some complex financial wizardry that creates a lot more public debt and will somehow solve it. That's what we're skeptical about. That, you know, maybe it's not a good idea. And Winston puts the figure at $50 to $60 billion. This decade. And, uh, you know, I've seen figures, estimates of 70 billion. I think about opportunity cost for that. That's what I'm skeptical about. Now, I'm not saying that uh, anthropogenic CO2 isn't a driver of climate change, but it's 3% of 0.04%. Anthropogenic CO2 is 3% of the atmospheric CO2. And that's before we even get to how, over the past two decades, the world's greened by 15%. A lot of areas that were uh, desert have greened up at the margins of deserts where we were told, "Well, those deserts are going to expand." The opposite's happened. That's the first point about the climate change. The government health advice. Let's look at that, shall we? So we're less likely to believe government health advice. Now, the government health advice. It's now, hey, maybe you should try taking this, just in the hope that we'll forget it was you have in Texas. Yeah, I wouldn't count on government health advice to keep me healthy. Let's let's just say that. And I think the evidence is pointing in that direction. And the fact that the media aren't examining that evidence, yeah, does make me somewhat. I'd say I fit that bill too. Or that sexual or gender minorities have been discriminated against. Undoubtedly, they probably probably have. A while ago, I wouldn't say so much now. It's the same if you um, deviate from the norm in any way. There's that's just all part of the herd mentality, I guess. But that's what gives you your edge, darlings. That's what gives you your sparkle. You don't want to be like everyone else. And as I've said before, much as uh, it's it's not my scene, I would certainly uh, help you out if you're getting hassled by someone. So you know, let's not conflate my not thinking it's a great idea to teach my seven and eight year old kids all about it or have. Men dressed as women reading them stories in libraries. I, uh, I don't think you should conflate it with my, uh, with any genocidal urge on my part. Let's see what else have we got? Uh, more given to believing conspiracy theories. Very difficult to know what you're talking about here. Are we talking about? Do I believe? It's worth discussing that sometimes groups of really powerful people get together and discuss things they might do which are in their advantage and not necessarily other people's, yes, I believe that. So, yep, guilty with that one too. It's always interesting that there's a lot of airy discussion about conspiracy theories, but not a lot about what they are or why they're wrong. That always bothers me because I'm all ears to that. I'd love to be wrong about some of them.
2: Hey, Hannah, are also, you Also, more
0: speak? paranoid. Now, just because you ain't paranoid, it don't mean they ain't out to get you. You know, the thing about paranoid people is the worst thing you can do is mock and marginalize them. And that's what the media seems fixated on doing. So you have to wonder, you know, are you really that worried about it or are they useful as people you can point to as being the enemy? He's also more religious. I've become more religious probably uh, over the past few years because I've seen more evil and I guess that's swung me around on that. And on a lower income than other voters, I'm undoubtedly on a lower income than some other voters, and a higher income than so I guess that that speaks to the fact that a lot of New Zealand First supporters are uh, are older and retired. What do you reckon?
2: I did read this, and so what we did, so for people sort of going, what is Marty going on about? What we're going on about is a in the Sunday Star Times. What your vote says about you by Virginia Fallon. And she spoke to psychology professor Mark Wilson, has crunched some data. So what Marty has just described is essentially a profile that was created of what they believe a classic New Zealand first voter will look like. It responded to the politics and mental health state of the nation survey. Mm. I did, I did love though, some of the So the way she paraphrased some of these things because that so they opened with New Zealand first.
0: That's why I started with it. Not not.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So so the first profile they gave was uh, John from New Zealand first. Then they went to James. James Mm. uh, is act according to Wilson the stereotypical ACT voter is a man less likely to be tattooed than the other parties. Mm. I wonder if Bart something. I wonder if Bart's got a tattoo. Can you see? I can't see David having a tattoo. Can you?
0: Oh, anyway, n- no, I wouldn't have thought so. It's I mean,
2: not, let's take that vision out of people's heads. Born in New Zealand, James neither believes in spirituality nor religion, and he does not time travel or fly.
0: Yeah, that's, that's odd, isn't it? It's very but odd, I mean, odd. there is that kind of reductionist element to some of those pure... Milton Friedman types. It always brings me back to that Arthur Schopenhauer aphorism that any stupid boy can squash a bug, but all the most brilliant scientists in the world cannot build one. There's something intangible about what it takes to make a nation successful, and you can't get there just looking at the numbers.
2: No, you can't. And so they go on and they do give profiles for every single major party that does Look like they're going to be in the tent. Look to me, I found it slightly humorous the whole thing, I think it was meant to be. But again, it said underlying. There's always, and it's been there then, tight time, the last, definitely the last six years. That underlying slight de- derision and dehumanisation mm. of anybody that doesn't toe the line and doesn't march to the beat of exactly the same drum.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, and the, the funny thing, you always get this with Kate, Kate Hannah, She talks about, and, and the word is, I know this because I've done a paper recently at uh, one of the hives, one of the wasps' nests of postmodernist bullshit studies. It's essentializing, And it was quite a good point, you know, if you sort of describe someone in a way that makes what they do as a part of their behaviour. So she'll spend quite a lot of time moaning about her opponents doing that and then do it to them often worse mm. with the characterization of act it's it says uh, it calls him James James is most likely to agree that success is based on survival of the fittest. I am not concerned about the losers and 25 percent presumably of act voters thought that which you know is a minority but I think that's a kind of a mean way to phrase it. I think a, a better way is, We believe in the Pareto distribution. So some people do win. Mm. Some trees and forests grow bigger than other trees. Some stars and galaxies are bigger than other stars, and it happens in a a very stable distribution. And it's the biggest argument against the obsession with equity. You can't get equity among children in a family.
2: Mm. That was something Casey Costello said in the interview that we talked about last week.
0: And and if you're fretting about some kid being less good at maths and another one, you're probably missing an opportunity to actually spend time finding out what he is or she is really good at. So, you know, I mean, there's terrible stories about that in, in school as well, where kids who are naturally gifted at maths are charged with teaching the kids who aren't maths. And so, equity. Who's next?
2: Jordan. Yeah, Jordan. Our unisex Jordan.
0: Yeah, He's pretty bland, isn't he, old Jordan, as its own brand?
2: Yeah, Jordan is probably as, uh, you know, nature's fresh, fresh white toast one could get. I would have yeah. thought. Uh, so Jordan is, uh, Jordan, meet Jordan from National. Uh, Jordan is a great thing about uh, the name Jordan is that it's unisex. There you go. Oh. He is, however, less likely to be vegetarian or vegan. And along with ACT voters, national supporters like Jordan are on an average salary of seventy 000 to 80,000 per year, making them the richest of all.
0: Yeah, they, they, I couldn't quite work that out. Are they saying they're richer than ACT, your average ACT voter?
2: Yeah, I mean, but that's okay because national voters love their rugby more than anyone else and they don't really care if it's the All Blacks or the Black Ferns.
0: That explains oh. why Luxon did so many yay, sports ball posts. Sports ball! Oh. Anywho. No, now, worst is, of all.
2: So this is the interesting of. Now we've done the men. Now we've done the men. It's time to jump the gender fence to the women. Meet Susan.
0: Voting us into tyranny since. So
2: Susan is is from Labour and is most likely to support Joe Biden and tends to worry more about covering the, the cost of basics. She trusts traditional mainstream media and government health advice and joins national voters as the least paranoid.
0: Yeah, the interesting thing in that is she's most likely to support Joe Biden 82%.
2: Remember, that's qualified because she trusts mainstream media.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, this brings me back to my earlier somewhat controversial comment that you may or may not agree with, that the biggest threat to our freedom is stupid women who would trade our freedom for the illusion of safety and weak, pathetic men who would trade our freedom for the illusion that those stupid women might approve of them if they agree with their bullshit hard enough.
2: That is one way of phrasing it. Virginia phrased it slightly differently. She phrased it. They're the most urban, most compassionate. They're the most trusting, and it's a weird paradox. Now I look at that, and it says they're the most compassionate and they're the most trusting. To me, that says they're the most foolish and the most gullible. Well,
0: that's what I was saying before.
2: I I know that's what I said. <laughs> Virginia paraphrased it slightly different to you. Oh, dear. They're they're more likely to be women than Labour's voters. And I think part of the reason for Labour's slump in the past... and Oh, and he thinks that that's part of the reason for their slump in the last few years. (laughs) Girls have taken over. Oh, gosh, Mark, that's... that's, uh...
0: Well, you know, the funny thing as well, they're the most compassionate. I'd like to pick that apart a little bit, too. Is that compassionate by voting for other people's money to be given to other people? Or is it they're the most compassionate in that they actually roll their sleeves up, help, Mm. and reach into their own pockets? I always wonder that about Green MPs as well, who are saying, well, you know, we've got the wealth there, we just need to, take it.
2: Well, speaking of that, you need to meet Christine, because Christine votes for the Greens. They're white, female, and more likely to be plant-based or apologetically omnivorous, ambivalent about rugby in general, but they do like women's soccer.
0: Pretty comfortable that rural folk are being accurately portrayed and represented.
2: Yeah, I think I think the Groundswell movement would have something to say about that, just quietly.
0: I mean, it's funny they said they believe in anthropogenic climate change too, which is a bit different from saying that the other side don't believe in climate change. They didn't give them that out. They just sort of made them sound stupid by saying they didn't believe in climate change.
2: And then, of course, there were the Te party Māori voters. But I, I want to jump to the end, which says, what unites us? Almost everyone disagrees on lowering the minimum wage. 88% of all voters are fine with premarital sex, and the same number are happy to accept humans evolved from simpler organisms. So they're mm-hmm. essentially ruling out the those who have strong uh, religious beliefs. Also only 9% think fluoride is bad for public health, 5.6% disagree that climate change is happening and 11% disagree that women have been historically disadvantaged.
0: Yeah, I didn't come prepared with this, but there was a an American public health organisation released after trying not to release it for a long time, their report on on fluoride. Lo and behold, Their studies indicate that it does cause a lowering of IQ in young people. Again, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it doesn't really matter. But don't piss on me and tell me it's raining.
2: Mm, Exactly. So that is a rather intriguing little article that was certainly a different bent from the other elements that were going on in the paper. Marty and I had a conversation on Saturday when we were sort of watching some of the stuff. And I, I actually had a, a bit, of, I was a bit anxious, wasn't I, Pete?
0: Mm, and did I said to, to talk you, you down?
2: yeah, you did. I, he, oh, you I, got a paper
0: bag, Busky, right? Stick it over your face, <laughs> breathe in and out.
2: Well, in my case, actually, it was an audio book and knitting, but just that whole sort of the shift that happened, I just found to use a Star Wars reference. I felt like there was a disturbance in the force and mm. And I didn't like it. And I think reflecting now, what I realized it was, was that movement in the campaign to start leveraging that tried and true strategy
0: Pushing of using
2: of using fear mm. to get the population back in line. And I was triggered, essentially. I suddenly realized that that's what it was. It was because I was seeing that and it really did upset me quite a bit and you know I've reflected on it now across this week and I've now consumed a bit more media and and as I feel a little bit more robust and the good mate here helped uh, talk me off the cliff on Saturday and I am feeling a lot better about things and I just suddenly realized you know if you are feeling a little bit anxious and you've read all the stuff in the papers over the last four or five days and you're thinking whoa this just feels kind of strange and why are they saying all of these things and where is this fear coming from you know what guys don't get yourselves all wound up about it because you know who they're talking to i've just decided that they're actually trying to target and talk to those people that are still running around in their cars driving by themselves with their masks on that's who they're talking to they're not talking to us and once i realized that i felt better
0: Oh, that's good. Yeah, no, it's. It, I don't never know which is more depressing: the fact that they use fear, or the fact that it works.
2: Mm.
0: You know, and and it annoyed. does work. That's yeah, why I, they do it. Yeah, especially on women because they're more um, sensitive to negative emotion. Because if you look at it from an evolutionary point of view, uh, the consequences for women of thinking something is a threat and being wrong are far less than the consequences of thinking something's not a threat. And being wrong. So they're much more open to. And as I've said before, there's been a weird thing happen where we've just been uh, had this menticide against us, you know, this breaking down of our minds through constant alarms going off. And so now, even if someone says to many people, hey, look, there is a genuine threat there, they're so desensitized to that thing that humans, obviously, again, if we go back and what's allowed us to survive through all these generations, it's if someone says, hey, hey, look over there, oh, you kind of drop what you're doing and you get a good shot of adrenaline and uh, you get ready to fight or run. So, yeah, those systems have been burned out.
2: Yeah, it is. I think a lot of us are sort of spent. And, you know, to that end, I mean, we are now at the point end of the wedge. Mr. Marie and I are going off to vote tomorrow. I've now solidified my decision. It's taken a while (laughs) to Mm. the last week of the campaign. Uh, But I feel quite comfortable with the decision. And I think that was the other, that flight or um, fight response. And I think that's what was getting me done on Saturday, is it wasn't only the seeing that sort of shift in messaging from those key parties. And that actually really did help. Solidify my party vote. I have to say, because I was, you know, that oppositional the,
0: nature of yours. Uh,
2: my oppositional nature. Yeah, it's like, yeah. right there. I'm going. Don't do you
0: it tell now. me what. i do the opposite.
2: Exactly, and also too within the um, the issues that are important to me. So, on Vote Compass, when I did Vote Compass this time round, I do it every time. I literally my dot and the ACT dot are practically on top of each other, and I have voted ACT for more than two decades and party vote. Yeah. So I have been pretty consistent well, it's on that. What's coming score. up now? And I no, I'm gonna tell people now because it's this close. And so that's where I've always been. And my candidate vote is the one that will bounce around the scheme of things. And it's because I am I like to vote for the person. And I think people forget that you have two votes. One of the other things that really sort of upset me is that for me this year, even though still on vote compass, I sit on act. There were some very key questions that were left out of Vote Compass, which were actually key issues to which I'm making my voting decision. And I think that was quite deliberate of them yeah. to do that because they didn't want to have people deviate away from those those other mainstream parties. So those questions were not placed there. For me, those obviously those issues are around freedom and liberty issues, that at traditionally have been the bastion of, but no longer, not to the same extent. So I have been really weighing up my options. I've had lots of the concerns around other parties, like many other people have. And I've been looking at all those other freedom parties because there's been lots of people that have pulled together. I've been interviewing them here. I've spoken to some really... Incredible people doing some amazing work, who are really dedicated, who share so many of the same views that I share.
0: Yep. who would be great to have in Parliament too. Who would
2: know. be wonderful yeah. to have in Parliament. But the reality of it is, and this is what this is what I was faced with on Saturday, knitting whilst I was knitting and listening to my audiobook, is what I realized on Saturday when it came to my party vote, I had it was a simple decision. I am either happy with the status quo of what the status quo has been for the last three years, or I'm not. Yeah. And I'm not. And that only leaves me, realistically, on the party vote, a single option. And that is New Zealand first, not actually Winston Peters. It is New Zealand first. And when I interviewed Casey, Erica, and Kirsten last week, That, to me, really solidified that this party isn't based on a single man. This party is some incredible candidates. He's not going to be there forever. This, I think, is his last rodeo. He's wanting to go out and have the legacy of New Zealand history of being the first politician to lead a party across the 5% threshold without winning a candidacy seat. So then it's looking at that list see who see who's coming in behind him. And he has got some great people. So if you're happy with the status quo of what happened in the last three years and you really are a f- someone who is a freedom-minded voter, you really only have one option. If you are someone that goes, no, I can't do that and I want to vote with my heart, well, that's okay. You can do that. It's your vote, darling. You do whatever you want, but do not complain when you have delivered back the status quo. Because ultimately, your vote will get redistributed amongst who is there.
0: Yeah, there's a bit of magic in the strategies of some of those remaining minor parties, the Umbrella Party, Brian Tamaki's party. You know, he was he said, "Well, we believe in miracles." And uh, you know, Liz Gunn's talking about what she f- what she's feeling about the two million votes throughout there that she's um, calling the way some uh, Pacific Island tribes used to call in Wales. The issues that the minor parties have had, you know the, the, the ones, especially the ones that have been recently started, really revolve around a, a saying that I wish I'd internalized when I was younger, which is that people overestimate what they can achieve in the short term and underestimate what they can achieve in the, lo- in the long term. It's a bit like cooking cooking bacon busky, you know like it doesn't tr- transmit heat that well. So if you turn it up too high, you burn the outside of it, and the inside's undercooked. You know, you've got to, you've got to just do it low and slow. And mm-hmm. and I had a phone conversation with someone who's um, very involved with New Zealand loyal about two elections ago, and they were trying to get me interested in coming on a political adventure with them, with their party that they were thinking of starting. My response was, look, you know, don't don't start a, a political party. Start a podcast. And that, that'll allow you to find out what the issues are, talk to people in an objective way, get yourself some sort of database. And so you'll really be on top of the issues. You'll find out who the good people are in each area and shoot for the election after this one coming or even the one after that. Because it is, I mean, you know, we've talked about this a lot. It it always does, it saddens me a bit. Reality Check Radio has been portrayed as being some sort of mindless mouthpiece for Winston Peters in New Zealand First because, you know, I, I'd never voted for New Zealand First prior to this election. You know, I was very cynical about Winston Peters' um, courage not always matching his convictions once he was in a lion on the campaign trail and a lamb in parliament. As you say, those those people who are further up his list and on the brink of getting into parliament, they're who I'm voting for. Mm, and- I know one of them personally.
2: Yeah, and Kirsten Murphy is is the classic example of that. You know, she is now on the cusp, based on the taxpayer union poll. She needs about another. Actually, I'll get the number because I have it. Yeah. So Kirsten posted this a couple of days ago, based on 2020 voting. To get Kirsten across the line, she needs just over nine percent. Currently, they're just shy of seven percent. What that means in actual votes, sixty three thousand votes. That's what she needs. So if you are somebody who who is wants a freedom campaigner in there or another freedom campaigner in there with the chops to be in Parliament representing the issues that are important to us. That's what we need to get somebody across the line like that. Now, I know that the New Zealand loyal people now, I can feel you're getting twitchy on your cell phones and you're going to be sending me a text. I know that. And you know what? I'm not discrediting your concerns or your belief in your party. What I'm saying is, you're not going to get in this time. It doesn't matter what your leader has said. The reality of it is, in the party vote, it is not going to happen, which is why we have two votes. Vote for your loyal candidate if that's your person that you want to vote for, or your democracy NZ, or tamaki for tamaki if you're Vision New Zealand. You know, you've got that vote. Vote for that person so you can send a clear message to them that you support them, you see them, you agree with them. You Keep going. But- Keep going, keep going and create it. But here's the reality. Loyal cannot be realistic to expect to turn up within weeks of an election and secure two million votes. As Cam calls it, that is huff and hopium, like nobody's business. It is not going to, to matter. But you do have that second vote. You really do need to consider Putting your vote where it's going to make a difference. And that is why that fair campaign is out there. That is why Labour, National, Act are throwing everything that they can. And yeah, the media party are doing that because they can see that all of a sudden the people they have been demonising and dehumanising for the last three years are finally going to get a voice. So you need Mm -hmm. to get over your big bag of ego selves. And if you want your voice, and you want to stop the status quo, you need to do the right thing, and you need to vote with your head and not your heart. Okay, Brento.
0: Yeah, good one. It's not just about freedom. What it is, is, and I've said this on many, many occasions before, it's about having the discussion. I'm not saying we've got to get people in who believe uh, what we believe. My thing is we got to have people in there who value actual discussion and think that the new zealand public can be trusted to weigh up different points of view and arrive at a at a sane conclusion and i know for a certainty that there's been information suppressed because it was not expedient for it to be publicized i know for a fact that giving the media that full rack price advertising revenue in addition to the public interest journalism fund which came with all sorts of strings, has turned off an essential alarm that's required for democracy to function in a healthy way. And so we've got to get that open debate and discussion back. Before we get to what's right and what's wrong, that's a, the that's a gate, that's the waharoa we've got to get through. Mm, so, it uh, is.
2: it mm. is. It is. It is certainly a really important time. The interesting thing, too, that you and I both did is – there are some people, whilst there's been the fair campaign going on, there are also there are some candidates out there, and these are in the main blocks that are starting to have some good information. And I know you both watched the uh TV interview shows. I just watched one of them. I watched The Nation. Did you the head to head between Grant Robinson and Nicola Willis? I have to say, I Willis was strong.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've I've always liked how forthright Nicola Willis is and Grant Robertson. I mean, it's just, again, you know, I'm looking at those ladies who 89% think Joe Biden, you know, the corrupt, senile pedophile is doing a great job. He's talking to them and, and somehow... They can believe him. He's there, sort of saying, you know, he said to her, "In Nicola's fiscal plan, you could you could cut every comms person and advertising, and you still wouldn't get back to surplus." He's saying it like it's someone else's fault, I know, <laughs> rather than his own. It's it's kind of
2: the disconnect from him. It was kind. Of, he was literally trying to point out these supposed holes in Nicola's plan, and it's like, but Grant, you're the one that cut the cheese, dude.
0: Yeah, he, she said to him, every spending goal he's he's set, he is broken, and he did look a bit sheepish. It did look sheepish. a little bit sheepish, but he he uh, pulled it back straight away, and then sort of said, you know, your twenty billion dollar offshore buyer money will not li- will lift house prices and drive inflation. And I mean that I'll use your word that brouhaha about the two hundred and fifty dollars a fortnight. It was just a mountain out of a molehill. Oh, yeah, okay. Mm. That's what some people get a bit less. You know, it's only 3,000 families that'll get that amount. Yeah, it's a curve. It's a curve. And then he said, it's not a Briscoe sale, Nicola. And I did think, well, she does look a little bit like the Briscoe's lady. But it was really funny. She's saying, are you saying I'm the Briscoe's lady? That was probably one of my favourite parts of the selection. Oh,
2: no, I know. I laughed at that out loud too because I'm in the day job. I've got a lot of customers that call me the Briscoe's lady of yarns. So.
0: the Briscoe's lady. She is lovely. Yeah. yeah. It's so yeah. nice. And you know, I notice he's just trotting out that. We saved 20,000 lives.
2: Oh, I heard that. I just so really, Grant. Are we still
0: using that line? If you hadn't done what you've done, are you saying that our excess death rate would be higher than what is it now? Is it ten or fourteen percent? It was a really good presentation I, I watched the other day with Dr. John Campbell's thing the other day, looking at excess deaths around the world. He's so good at just sticking to really good official data. But, mm. yeah, he, New Zealand came up. We're 10%. We've been 40%. Mm. And it was, you know, in lockstep with when the uh, the old Safe and Effective was rolled out. So it's drawing a very long bow. And it's more cheek than a fat man kind of bare face to just say The that.
2: reason I think he's saying it is that's about the only thing that he can cling on to as a party that they've supposedly achieved. And even then, it's a gaslit lie.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Guy and Espino, Darth Vance and Ruth uh, Richardson were on the panel discussion after that. I read her autobiography. She's pretty much the way you'd imagine her. She's just She's like New Zealand's Milton Friedman, old Ruth Richardson.
2: With the panel, I mean Guyon was his usual sort of fence city self, but I loved Ruth. You know, Ruth—they—they they were wafting around, and she was like, "No, you know," because she was getting back to the the fiscal reality of where things are at as an ex finance minister
0: would. Yeah, and again, what reform I, is needed? We need to it, grow the economy. Yeah, and we're 157th out of 158 countries. Yeah. I don't know why Luxon doesn't talk about that more. Maybe he doesn't want to talk New Zealand down. I don't know. It seems pretty damning.
2: Yeah, I can and I can't remember who was it because I've read so many columns in the last little bit. Someone was moaning and opining about the fact that there was no one that was providing aspirational leadership. And it's like, no, because all you guys all anyone can talk about is other than the fact that New Zealand first could, you know, are likely to get back in is trying to just one-up one, one up each other in terms of ba- bagging each other. And again, I wonder, I do genuinely wonder, this is why the Greens have started sort of picking up a number of votes because they're picking up those Labour voters who they're getting sick of all of this and they are just banging out policy, their policy positions to very, very niche spaces. So they're hitting the university campuses, they're hitting...
0: Innumerate almost- people. All those places in maths, people who haven't read history and understand where Marxism always leads when it's implemented.
2: Those who prefer feeling over knowing, I think that's a more pl- political way of calling it, but they that's where they've been targeting. And it is, yeah, it is just it is just insane because we are now at this point, and as you said, there is plenty of, clear points that Christopher Luxon could be making. Now, I say this, he did have a very solid two hours with Mike Hoskins on Monday. He did sound more like a leader, but this is the problem. I mean, he he will sound like prime ministerial and then he'll go off on one of these tangents, you know, and I just wonder, is that as an experience? or Because honestly, this entire tangent of we, we may have a second election. Really?
0: Really? Yeah. Hasn't happened in, in 27 years of MMP.
2: Yeah. So. Now, speaking of second elections, the tragic story this week of the sudden passing of Neil Christensen, the act candidate for Port Waikato.
0: Yeah, right.
2: Which is utterly devastating for his family uh, at this time. Really? I'm not sure how old he was, but he was an avian specialist veterinarian, so he was a very qualified chap. One of the little quirks that threw up that I wasn't aware of until yesterday was what the implication of his passing means after writ day and after voting has actually started. Do you realise we're now going to have 121 seats in Parliament, not 120?
0: I'm, I'm still getting my head around it. So, how does that work?
2: So, I checked with Yoda because one must check all these political things with Yoda. Yes. So, I did check with Slater the Cam. And he, you must not. this is a very simplified version of essentially what is happening because votes have already started to be cast, right? All the party votes that have been cast count. And what they do is they will count in that Port Waikato seat and they will count whoever wins the party vote in that seat will win the seat for that party. Mm. Then the candidate votes, that will be done again as a by-election because they can't take any of the votes because obviously the voting had opened and Neil has passed in that time. A by-election will be held and then the candidate for Port Waikato will be selected at the by-election. And they need to seat 120 people in Parliament after voting is concluded so that's the very simplified version and i know those who are more politically inept right. all, these, all these different nuances but that's the simplified version of what will happen so the part if you live in port waikato your party vote very much will count uh this time round and then there will be a by-election to select your candidate mm. so that sort of throws another little wrinkle into the mix because it then means that potentially one of those main main blocks will get an additional seat that uh, a bonus seat like the bonus ball and lotto that they didn't know that they were going to get. So again it then means that if you want to avoid the status quo that party vote is going to be even more important.
0: Yeah, did you see Kate Hannah at the end of the nation?
4: No mm-hmm. show without
0: punch. Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, she's talking about violent, vulgar discourse. I Um, read the
2: article on that. Yeah,
0: yeah, just people scared they'll lose as Maori reclaim their rightful place. And then old Cuddles Costa got on and um, talked about the anger in the country and the violent rhetoric being driven by social media.
2: In the article, there was there was no detail, like it was all based on the vibe of the thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. So he's sort of saying, yeah, it's because of social media. It says, like, you don't think it's what your chums have been doing over the past three years that's made people feel powerless and angry. And then, yeah, Q&A uh, the next day. There was a, um interview with the Federated Farmers President, Tim Hurdle. He came across really well, really impressive guy. You know, he's sort of still um, talking about how Groundswell's mainly driven by two guys who um, have got pretty definite ideas, whereas he uh, has to deal with the membership that comes out of all of these different districts and is its own. So he's, you know, not able to take strong positions on things. Yeah, it was a really strong interview by him. He was really good at just sticking to the issue, saying, oh, you know, we need one calculator. For emissions rather than 11 and nitrogen accounting.
2: See, I'd love to hear someone say we don't need a calculator for it at all.
0: Yeah, I, I, I would too. Had Sue Bradford on there as well. Oh, God. Yeah. Just, she's the same old Maoist. I was just going to
2: say she's red as she ever
0: was. Yeah. You can actually um, sound like Sue just by grabbing your bottom lip. It's dog whistling the left trying to build a caring compassionate nation but something's going wrong with the mood of the nation yeah people are disappointed with both national labor greens are going great so I know. that's that's their target market i guess white ladies who like communism yeah she described the left as compassionate and kind and the right as racist and divisive
2: oh and gosh rolling out those stereotypes the devil
0: speaking was one phrase she used to describe something that people on the right were saying. But yeah, she's taken as a serious commentator. We haven't really covered, like, I mean, I moaned at the outset, we sort of had just read the same article written by different people. So we haven't really covered that much of it, have we?
2: Yeah, but they, well, I mean, we can, but essentially they the themes were don't trust New Zealand first, or don't trust Winston, actually, not necessarily New Zealand first, don't trust Winston, there could be a second election. And Christopher Luxon bought this on himself by not rolling Winston out at the beginning. Have I missed yeah, anything? That's pretty much it. It's like in a band and they're all playing the same four chords, but with a slightly different tune. It was there wasn't really anything there. A couple of other little stories that caught my eye. One was Barry Soper. And I didn't realize that he'd had a little, I mean, we all know that he'd been in surgery for his for his yeah. and, and, and he, yeah, he had a A
0: couple of weeks after a surgery.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um gosh, you know, wishing Barry well because we do need more berries. And- yeah. He's a fairly solid voice in the New Zealand media landscape, and I don't know about you, but I'm not prepared to see Barry leave us just yet, so I'm glad to hear that he's back home with Heather and oh, again. of
0: course not. It's worth taking a moment to say, for all that we are giving all of these uh, journalists and politicians stick, it's not personal, it, it's just some of the funny ideas you have, and I guess some of the funny things you have to say because uh, you want to keep your job.
2: On the kudos front, someone that we have given a little bit of stick for and he's noticed has been Charlie, Charlie Mitchell from Stuff. And Charlie, Charlie, you wrote a piece in the Post and I think it also appeared in the press. It was a damn fine piece of journalism, Charlie. Thank you. And the piece was called... I mean, it is part of the overall theme, but it's probably of the theme, the best of them. It's called An Awakening, How the Freedom Movement Found Its Man in Winston Peters. Now, do you know what the first thing I want to say to you, Charlie, is that you didn't call us the so-called Freedom Movement. You called us the Freedom Movement. So thank you, Charlie. Uh, And I do know that this is online. It talks about, it actually just gives a, a nice little timeline of, for those people who Aren't necessarily in the freedom movement. They're trying to figure out how this has all come about. With New Zealand first, he gives a good little timeline on that. He talks about some of the people that uh, that have have gotten involved and gotten behind them. And actually, there was a second. He mentions in here the, the third party influences, and there was another entire article around third party influences and what they're spending, which in in this country I think is the closest you can get to sort of. Lobbying group. So a third party, a really good example of third party influencer would be Bob Macrosskey from Family First would be a great example. The trade unions get in. So the CTU and Air Two, they they are. Reg- and I think you've got to register now. Who else? Um, taxpayers Union. They yeah. are certainly You know what
0: pissed me off about that is they kind of which expected to take these influencers. Oh, they're putting up a few billboards. And they never really kind of confront the support you can buy or the the direction you can change if you're borrowing $100 billion and then just (laughs) spraying it around your little in-crowds.
2: So this article from Charlie, I'm just going to read the final few paragraphs because I think it sums it up beautifully. One of the people he highlights in here is Gary Moller and Gary is a regular guest with Paul over on breakfast. So do check that out on the app. Just pop Gary Moller in and all his interviews with Paul will pop up. But In the end, it says here that in the dying stages of the campaign, it is clear which of the three early options won out. The new parties such as Democracy New Zealand, New Zealand Loyal, have failed to amass support as has the Umbrella Party of Freedoms New Zealand. There is now widespread support within the freedom movement for New Zealand First recognising both its political offerings and its position to exercise raw political power. In a recent post, Gary Moller encouraged others to join New Zealand First and influence the party from within. When you become the party, it becomes you. Our adversaries have been effective in sowing division across New Zealand, including within the freedom movement, but we won't let them triumph, he wrote. It's time for us to unite and stand together as one, our power lies in combining our votes and throwing our support behind a single party that is past the 5% threshold, and that party is New Zealand first. Well said, Gary Moller. Mm.
0: You know, there, there were a few articles, now I think about it, in Sunday Star Times, I, I they they did kind of a few perspectives on different voter blocks. And one was, mm. they talked to a 21-year-old woman, Te Kahuka, Koka Rose Harawira Yelash. Sounds like she's from Northland.
2: But well, with Harawira Yelash, I think that's a fairly safe bet, <laughs> yeah,
0: just quietly. I'm just making assumptions, but I think I might be right. Yeah, who has whakapapa to the far north in Whanganui? She's on a job seeker benefit. And why, the reason that this one jumped out at me was it provided an interesting insight into the mindset that a lot of young Māori have that is very dangerous, I think, and very disempowering to them. And it's cynically fostered by people who uh, want money and power. And this is what she said. The government does not want us to become successful. I know I sound crazy right now, but they want us to struggle to make them richer. She said the people at the top, the politicians running the system, have helped create many of what she deems to be racist attitudes in some part of society. People need to realize that if they wipe the treaty, they wipe us. We will no longer be able to be in our own country because we will have no rights. <laughs> all the lines of Waititi's uh, democracy is is tyranny of the majority. And, and you know, she's right when she says some of that, but rather than the government does not want us to become successful, I would uh, I would say... A lot of Maori leaders might feel that way. They don't want the tutua to become successful and well-educated and able to critically analyse it.
2: And here's Um, the thing. She is the one who's the bastion and the guardian of her success, not the government. Yeah. That is the lie that the young have been sold.
0: It's shocking. It's shocking. The other one was... This is right up your alley, Uh, Marie. The rainbow issues. So yeah, Tabby Besley is the director of Inside Out, a charity focused on rainbow rangatahi. Inside Out are the people who are sending folks into primary schools and secondary schools to teach children that maybe they're a girl and and they've just been born in the wrong body. And uh, they openly state that their patron saint, if you like, is... uh, Dr. John Money, who's from the University of Victoria, Victoria University, who conducted all sorts of dubious experiments, most notably on a pair of twins, which by uh, any measurement were a failure, but he was able to go around claiming they were a great success. And he developed words like gender roles. And so, yeah, if you if you go back to look at where the taproot of all of this hysteria goes, it often goes uh, back to... Uh, pedophile academics. So yeah, she's sort of moaning about the danger of, uh, like everyone else, the danger of New Zealand first. She's worried about a bill in America that would that would ban gender-affirming care for minors. Now, what gender-affirming care means is taking minors and uh, putting them on puberty blockers and or surgery. And it's given that sort of sweet gender-affirming, th- those two things. And just that... Yeah.
2: And of course, you know, I mean, if people are concerned about those gender issues. I have done a plethora of interviews around this topic, as many may know. Mm. And Helen Houghton, bless her heart, is probably one of the biggest advocates in this space in New Zealand. And after the election, she'll continue to advocate in this space. So is Dynandy. And yeah. uh, speaking out
0: against the creepy interest that academics have in the sexual sexuality of other people's children.
2: So, in reference to that article, in the piece with. Kirsten that I did last week, speaking to the ladies from New Zealand First, I thought Kirsten had a really great explanation. She had somebody, I think it was from Inside Out, at one of her meetings, and Mm -hmm. they were trying to sort of heckle. So she went to speak to them afterwards. And as she said, by their own admission, 0.8% of people identify in that space. She has a very disabled child, and they represent people with disabilities in New Zealand,
0: Five percent, did she say? It was more.
2: Significantly higher. And she said, where where are the rights for my child? Where is the month-long celebration for my child?
0: Where's the trans story time in old people's homes and hospitals? It it seems to be mostly uh, focused on taking trans story time to children. But uh, this article also quoted national leader Christopher Luxon said New Zealand First's approach to worrying about transgender people using women's bathrooms was on another planet, which I think was quite tone deaf. Not as tone deaf as the uh, Beehive Diaries that had that story about him going into an old people's home and talking about raising the uh, age of.
2: It was so funny. That was my big laugh out loud moment this week.
0: Yeah, uh, Luxon's. So went into an old people's home talking about the raising,
2: uh, raising of the retirement age.
0: Yeah, raising the retirement age. Luxon noted it would not come into effect until 2044. He added that, with all due respect, he thought it would be unlikely they would be around to see it. Our journalist on the scene, Deputy Political Editor Thomas um, Cochran, reported Luxon's joke about their mortality went down as you might expect it to. <laughs> <laughs> like a cup of
2: gold. So it. Yeah. Oh I did have a good laugh out loud moment on, on that yeah well we've covered a lot of ground this morning really only on the politi- political political
0: oh, around in circles a long distance uh, on the same ground maybe
2: I know and I apologize to listeners I don't get ranty very often but I have been a little bit ranty today. any other anything else you want to cover off
0: No just you know get in there and mm. vote vote for whoever you want to. It's easy to get a bit of imposter syndrome doing this sort of stuff when talking on a radio show or whatever, and you just do have that voice in your head saying, "What the hell do you know? Why should anyone listen to you?" And I, I hope that that comes across. Mm.
2: And this is a political lottery, and you can only be in the lottery if you've bought a ticket. So you do need to go out and vote. That's the most important thing. A right, couple of good news fronts, and since you know. On the sports ball, I'm not going to talk about any of the sports ball stuff that's gone on because I'm just not interested, to be fair. But I have to say Bathurst, Shane Van Gisbergen and uh, Richie Stanaway, first New Zealand duo to win it for quite some time. So that, that, you know, for a kids out there. Yeah, and more than that, um, I only noticed, look, to be fair, I only picked this up because she's the same name as my son, but Louis Sharp, he just won the F4 Championship um, up in the Northern Hemisphere as well, another Kiwi. So there you go
0: well done
2: well done so congratulations to all of those and and again if you'd like to send us anything oh we do give some feedback quickly we'll do some feedback so if you want to send us some feedback and after today's show you might after you know because i've been a bit ranty so (laughs) so do send it if you're somebody a
0: little bit paranoid what else are we
2: 2057 is the text number inbox realitycheck.radio is the email from john we love john we love John. John, Marie and Marty, you really complement each other. I love them. Marty's wit and profound descriptions of many things light me up. Bloody good listening.
0: Oh, I hope you've enjoyed today's show, John. Thanks I hope that. you
2: have enjoyed today's show, John. Oh, and this one here. Uh, hi, Marie. Appreciate your interviews. Excellent election coverage in general. Many thanks to you and all the RCR team. That one's from Peter. Peter. Hi, Marie, just love listening to you and Marty. You fill me with such joy. You both seem to enjoy yourselves. Thank you very much. And um, That's from the text machine. So there's some nice to um, have some good feedback in there. Hey, and before we go to, don't forget the election night party. Are you coming along to that? Yeah. Zoom in?
0: Yeah, I'll be there.
2: Yep, so if you want to check that out, uh, if you're a Foundation Members Club, it's easy, we're going to send you an email uh, invitation, it's for free, Uh, there is a nominal fee if you're not, it starts at around 6-ish, goes through to about 10.45, 11 o'clock, and uh, I'll be in and out, I've got a a function on at my place, uh, so they'll be dropping in and out, and we've got the...
0: What function do you mean party? Yeah. Yeah, I mean parties. So you did sound quite sophisticated. Oh, I,
2: I did talk to Deeksi. She did say to me today, she said, Marie, would you like to, to go? And I I said, oh, no, anytime. And then I suddenly thought, maybe earlier in the night before one's had too many winesies, but could be more animated later on. Uh, divine, so... Th- so, yes, yeah, so we'll be zooming in and out. But the best part is we've got Paul as being joined by Morris Williamson uh, for the first part of the show, and then it is going to be picked up by Rodney and Natalie Cutler Welsh, Rodney Hyde and Natalie Cutler Welsh for the second half anchoring, and they'll be bouncing into the likes of myself, you, Cam, a whole bunch. So it should be just a bit of fun. If you want a little bit of alternative, alternative political coverage for the election, uh, do go and check that out. It should awesome. be good. Right, I think, I think that's us for another week. Next week will be the post-mortem, so we will have, I'm sure, a lot to talk about uh, the post-mortem from the election next week here on Media Matters. Thank you again, as always, my friend.
0: Thanks, Marie. Have a great week, everyone.
2: Coming up, Woke News of the Week here on Reality Check Radio, and you're with Counterculture.
0: It's time for the Woke News of the Week.
2: The woke news of the week is my summary of some of the wokest news stories that have appeared in international media across this past week. A failure to make a splash. In the 2023 World Cup Aquatic Swimming World Cup held in Berlin this past weekend, the much-discussed open category designed to address transgender athletes' participation in sports saw no entries. World Aquatics has introduced this category, planning races in at least 50 and 100 metre distances for all four strokes. However, despite the global debate on the topic, no swimmers, including transgender or cisgender individuals, chose to enter the new open categories. This outcome underscores the rarity of transgender women competing against women at elite level in swimming. Leah Thomas, the only known transgender woman to compete at a high level in women's swimming, has faced additional hurdles due to the USA swimming rules regarding transgender participation. While the open category was created to celebrate diversity and encourage future development, it remains unutilised in its inaugural event. Registration deadlines for Athens and Budapest stops of the World Cup are yet to come. Carbon counting comes to our towns. In a new initiative worthy of WOKE, scientists have embarked on a multi-million dollar project to map the carbon footprint of every city and town in New Zealand. For some, a fool's errand or an ambitious endeavour aims to provide real-time admissions data for every urban area in the country, making New Zealand the world's first nation to achieve such comprehensive monitoring. Until now, the extent of carbon dioxide emissions and absorption by trees and parks in these areas have remained unclear. With cities being the primary source of carbon dioxide emissions in New Zealand, this project holds immense significance in the nation's effort to combat climate change. As scientists work to unveil the carbon profiles of urban centres across the country, this initiative is set up to play a crucial role in the shaping of New Zealand's environmental policies and contributing to global climate change. Action, one has to wonder at what cost. Shh, the first rule of woke club is you don't talk about woke club. Comedian John Cleese has revealed that guests on his upcoming GB News show, The Dinosaur Hour, are hesitant to engage in discussions about woke issues due to concerns about the potential backlash and job loss. Police expressed frustration with individuals who refused to debate these topics, stating that they want their ideas to be accepted without question. He also mentioned a university professor's claim that more people are being fired during the woke era than during McCarthyism of the 1950s. While Cleese appreciates the creative freedom he has been granted by GB News, he did not hold back from criticising the channel for what he considered nasty, vulgar rubbish in some segments. This revelation comes amidst recent controversies surrounding GB News, including the sacking of host Lawrence Fox and allegations of a civil war within the network. Cleese's Dinosaur Hour is set to debut on October twenty-nine. And finally, Common Sense Professor breaks out. In a bid to combat what he sees as the stifling influence of woke culture and academia, Professor Eric Kaufman, formerly of Burbeck University of London, has established a Faculty for Common Sense at the University of Buckingham. Professor Kaufman, known for his right-leaning views on ethnicity, national identity and other topics, left his previous post after facing years of pressure and attacks for his views. The new Centre for Heterodox Social Science at the University of Buckingham aims to promote academic free speech and research the culture wars, including topics like trans rights and critical race theory. Professor Kaufman's first course, Woke. The Orangids, Dynamics and Implications of Elite Ideology is set to begin in January, followed by a master's degree program in September 2024. His move highlights the ongoing debate surrounding academic freedom and ideological diversity in higher education.
1: Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.
2: Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. And before I go, I'm going to remind you again about our election special webinar that's going to be on this Saturday. Celebrate, commiserate, laugh, let off some steam. Whatever you choose to do, come and join us on election night. We'll be checking in throughout the night with various political parties and private events around the country. Pop in and come in and say hello. You can come and go as you please tickets are $10 for the event but if you are an RCR Foundation member you will receive your free complimentary registration link directly into your inbox so make sure you check it out go to realitycheck.radio forward slash election dash party and grab your tickets now or sign up as an RCR member and get your free pass to attend the special event uh, also I'll be part of the roundup coverage on Monday and Marty and I will have our own election summary next week on Media
0: Matters you're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Uh, yellow yeah, yeah. 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 Chick Radio. Yeah. Radio.